even that thing about you turning it around, I've never kind of spoken about it. I mean, I'm sure not, not many people know about that, but that's, and I don't make a big thing about it, but is, if you're thinking back, now that you asked it, it is kind of interesting that, you know, by the time I was like 14, 15, I was finding it difficult to read. Um, and then people, always people, yeah, it's the whole thing, Sheikh, you're, you're, you're kind of gifted from the beginning. And the, even now I find, difficult, I find it difficult reading. Um, I have to concentrate and that's, you know, it's a struggle, but the struggle, with the struggle you get the benefits. And so that journey of study was essentially off off the roadmap. And I got to Tareem, there was a brother, um, Thaqib Mahmoud, um, he's a sheikh now, he's my, even though I've not seen him for like 12 years, he's one of the most beloved people to me. Because um, we got to Tareem and we kind of met each other, there was only two of us who spoke English. And um, I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here to study. And I'm very serious at this point, I'm not like I am now. And I said, we're going to have to speak English for a week. And after that, no English. So we were chit-chatting and getting like off like a house on, house on fire, like really friendly and all the rest of it. He's from um, London, so we're like chit-chatting and all the rest of it. And then the week passes, and obviously I, I know what I've said. And that's it, no English. And then I think it created a lot of tension. <laughs> and he's, mashallah, he's big. And like, yeah. If he was in Glasgow, he'd, he'd be a tough guy. Yeah. And so it was like, it was, and I, I didn't back down. Okay. Even though we could have chatted for hours, we were not there to chat. And I applied to Mahad al-Fat. I went there and had a look. And it was interesting because the first day there was like 3,000 people attending to apply for the first year. And it was a surreal experience because the mudir, Sheikh Abdul Fattah, Bism, he basically had everyone lined up in batches of like 500, just walking past and touching them saying, next, you can go into the next phase. Is it like, I've not watched Hunger Games, but I can imagine <laughs> this is almost like, this is like he was onto something. So he would just touch someone on the, sh it's almost like he's saying this person's of the right material. And how would he know, what was the... I have no idea. So this is like, I need to ask him okay. at some point. And then... So, so the, this was picking who was going to get entry into... Not entry, this is getting to the next stage. The assessment process. Yeah, so then checking who you are okay. and, uh, you know, do you have a family of scholars and all the rest of it and then... After that, you'd have a written test, and then you know they would kind of there was kind of three processes, and I realised that when I started to compare myself with other people, that I could see studying and memorising. I was, I was a mad al-fat, and we had used to have a Quran. Uh, we used to hifl, and then we used to have to recite the Quran. And there's like 60 people in in our specific halaqa, and then the teacher would say, "Okay, start the page that you're supposed to have memorised." And then some of the Arabic Arab students at the front, like Algerians and Moroccans, they would. You know, their turn would be the end, so it goes through and by about 40 minutes you'd be at the front. And they'd say, okay, what do we need to memorise? They'd get the mushaf out. And they hadn't memorised the page. And within like seven minutes they've memorised the page. And that page, I would have started tw uh, two weeks ago. All through that period I was thinking, if I'm not gifted in this, should I just give up? And I thought, no, no, because, um, you know, when we're asked to deliver, I can do as, as well as these people that are very, very... Um, sharp uh, in terms of memory but perhaps in terms of understanding they're not you know it's, it's something you, if you're given something you that may be you know balancing something else that you're not given Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Muslim centric podcast this episode of Desert Island Gems is a particularly special one for me because I had the good fortune to interview one of my teachers, 
a close friend and someone who I regard as one of the foremost Islamic scholars in the West. I've been asking Sheikh Rizwan Muhammad for this interview for over six years, but he's always been hesitant. I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it's because he loves to discuss ideas and thoughts and doesn't really like to talk too much about his own personal life. I'm glad he eventually did agree because I think it's inspiring for others to hear the origin stories of our Islamic scholars and teachers. Sheikh Rizwan is from Glasgow, so we got to know each other just before he left for his further studies abroad in the 1990s. As he was about to return back to Glasgow in the 2000s, I would hear anecdotes from other UK students studying in the Middle East of Sheikh Rizwan's scholarship. And I asked him about some of these and then too, but he is too humble to say much in this regard. So I'll let you make your own conclusions. In the interview, he does reveal some aspects of his past that I've never heard before, particularly including his life growing up in Glasgow. It's amazing to hear how a young boy who struggled to read went on to devise a groundbreaking Islamic studies programme which has taught over 7,000 students in 15 cities and now teaches across the world online. From what I've heard, the iSyllabus programme is unique because it has a high percentage rate of students that actually complete the year-long diploma as well as the more advanced courses and that's very different to other short courses and other institutions. His Desert Island Gems are beautiful ones that give you a glimpse into his personality I do hope you enjoy listening. It is a longer interview, so you may wish to listen in parts, but for me it was well worth the wait. Can I also ask you for a favour before you leave? Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts because it helps other people find our content. Inshallah, this will benefit us and those that listen. I've also started a newsletter which you can sign up to via the website and I hope you do benefit from that. So until next time, I hope you enjoy the episode. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. So assalamu alaikum Sheikh. Um thank you so much for agreeing to do today's podcast on the Desert Island Gems. It's only taken at least six years, I think, to get you to agree. Um so thank you so much. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this discussion, particularly because um I guess I was in the fortunate position to know you before you became a Sheikh. So I think our paths crossed initially when we were at Glasgow University. I think you were just you had just left actually. Um so we'll come on to some of that. But I, I think you've had a really fascinating journey which I think can be inspiring for many people, um, inshallah. And we'll cover through some of these gems that you've got. As you know, we cast away the guests to a desert island and with them they take these gems which can be um Quranic verses, hadith poetry etc that they would take with them that would remind them about important parts of their life so really looking forward to coming on to that but I'd like to start at the beginning and I guess your early life and childhood Um, can you kind of summarize or give a insight in terms of what your early life was like growing up in Glasgow Mm. probably just not far from where we are just now Um, and what your kind of memories growing up what was the household like what was the family life like well, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in an, office, in an office which is in the middle of Maryhill, Great Western Road, Glasgow. So if I look at the window, I can see a place where I played football, had street fights and all sorts of memories come. Um, I was cycling here and I saw somebody from my school, so somebody from 32 years ago I met in the street just minutes ago. And so, you know, I'm here and I'm very much aware of the fact that I'm a product of kind of environment, the culture, 
family um, setting within which I um, experienced life at the beginning. And it was a very, I think, a very stable, loving um, family setup. My father had um, a number of shops, so I used to help my father in that in, in my early years, all the way up until secondary school, finishing secondary school, in fact. And um, it was interesting that I was teach I'm teaching my son how to read, and um, I was, my mother was watching me and she was saying, you're being a bit too harsh. And um, I said, no, I'm not. And she says, yeah, well, you couldn't read properly until, until you were like 14. And, and actually, my daughters were watching this conversation. And I said, and she reminded me of the fact that I used to make up the inventory for the shop. So the inventory taking a, a list of what was in the shop, what needed to be purchased. And I, and I um, this is really, really funny, actually. Um, Uncle Ben's. It's a rice, it's a rice, rice isn't it? Yeah. So, I, so I thought they were Uncle Beans. <laughs> so that's how bad it was when I was I was like fourteen. So you can imagine. Um, as we googled it, Uncle Beans, and, and funnily enough, it doesn't ex exist anymore. It's Ben's, because Uncle Beans, Uncle Ben, sorry, has um, um, racist overtones. They've yes, they've changed the name. So I was talking about the kind of reason why they've changed the name, and then my mother was saying, "Well, well, you know, um, you should have studied much better when you were younger." In fact, my my early life in school specifically was very much about underachievement. Up up until fourteen, I was I was um, not um, somebody that read or uh, took education seriously at all. And when you say uh, difficulty reading, you mean in terms of something formal like dyslexia or anything, or do you mean just you didn't pay attention in classes? I don't know, or because something? even now... Did you read novels and no, Roald Dahl and stuff? No, no, nothing up, at nothing all. No, I, think, I, I can't remember any book I read until I was like 15, 14, 15. And um, even now, people say I've got a, a photographic memory. It's not. I mean, I need to read things. Sometimes I'm, I'm on a paragraph for like 10, 20 minutes. A sentence, sometimes I'm looking at it. And I think when I was studying Islamic studies, that was something that was actually something our scholars, our, our teachers, wanted to encourage that you actually ponder over what you're reading. So I kind of used that to my advantage. So it was like 14-year-old. I remember my father went into school for the parents' evening and they realised that I wasn't getting forwarded for the O-level examination in English. And this was roughly at the prelim period, like I think it was like November, December. And my father kind of said, no, you need to put him forward for the exam. And obviously I, wasn't, I was in the foundational class in English, which means that you're, you're not really taught anything. And so my father says, no, he's going to be put forward for the exam. So my name was put forward. I failed it. So O-level English, I failed. Okay. But then the next year, I, I think I got a B. And then I got an A in, I think, higher. So at that point, I spoke to my English teacher and said, well, what can I do? And she said, well, you need to read much more. And I said, OK. And, and I started to buy the Sunday Times, the newspaper. It's this massive tome. And it helped English, but it also opened your horizons to the fact that that the world isn't just Glasgow, it's not just the West End of Glasgow. And I went to nursery in, in the same block where, you know, my parents lived and the primary school was around the corner, the secondary school was around the corner. The university eventually went to Glasgow University, first of all, it was around the corner. They're all in the same place. And, you know, reading about different cultures, the travel section, for example, when you see people living in different cultures, having different experiences, it it, it it dawned on me the fact that reading is so so important, so powerful, that you know there's a whole world that's that's closed off from you if you can't read things, you can't accumulate knowledge from other people's experiences, and that was a life changer. I think um, just one teacher advising, and that's the thing about teachers. I, I mean, I have a lot of respect for teachers. I think it's under uh, under emphasised that teachers change lives. 
and um, you know, a teacher that opens a, a student's eyes up to the wider environment within which they live, the, the impact that they can make, um, is far more important than anybody else, I think, in our community. That's why the Prophet ﷺ was called a mu'allim. He was, he was essentially, you know, it's a nasheed, mu'allim, yeah, it's why he's famous, Sami Yusuf. But essentially, mu'allim is just, you know, the most important quality of the Prophet ﷺ. Not the most, but it's one of the most important. No, in fact, it is the most. He was, he was sent as a teacher and a murabbi. And the reason why that's so important is it, it sets people on a path um, that changes them and then changes society as well. And, and, and maybe we'll touch on some of these, but I guess thinking back when, you know, that pre-14, you know, in primary school and, um, I mean, what what was kind of your day-to-day -day life like? What were you doing? And what was your family like? Was it quite a religious family? My father, um, yeah, my family, I mean, I met my uncle a couple of days ago. He was he was so engrossed in dhikr walking down Great Western Road that he just ignored me. And then I kind of had to, like, look at him and he turned around and he met somebody else with me as well. And then we, you know, did salam and things. So my my father's side is very, very kind of, um, I, I would say, connected to the spiritual aspects of Islam. And and my house was a place where many scholars frequented. My father was very hospitable. Because um, he was very involved in the mosque and in the mosque, and he was, you know, I've got his, some of his books. He passed away, Rahimahullah, in two thousand sixteen. And I've got a lot of his books here, you know. Um, and he used to read a lot. And I realized that you know, even though when he was in the shop, I realized after he passed away, there's a book he used to have behind him. And when there was no customers coming, he would open it up. It was actually a book in Arabic grammar. So he was kind of self-taught Arabic as well. So, I mean, apart from that, his, his kind of moral outlook in life was something that impacted me a lot. I, he had a, this thing that you had to be principled. It doesn't matter what happens. It's kind of very old school idea of what's right and what's wrong. And he would speak the truth. And I remember it was a, there was a khutbah in, in one of the local mosques here and there was a, the khatib was talking about some historical issue to do with Sayyidina Muawiyah radiallahu anh and he said something, my father stood up in the, in the middle of the khutbah and he says, you've made a mistake and you've, you've dis disrespected a companion of the Prophet and he then he told him what happened. He gave him, my dad just gave him this whole sequence of what actually happened and what he was narrating. So I was looking at my father thinking, my goodness, there's like 400 people in this room Nobody stood up, and I thought that's 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 a good thing to do, like to stand up like that. Yeah. Like, was your dad from like was it like a religious lineage, or was he kind of self-taught, or how did? Mm. I mean, where did he get that kind of? I mean, no, my father was in the police in, in Pakistan before he came the Karachi the Karachi cops. Was he? So yeah, he was uh, he was of that kind of you can see the demeanor that kind of tough demeanor. Um, no, I think it was just the, the the general trend of pietistical association with. Scholars and, and respect for scholars and love the Prophet very much, you know, something that's part of a lot of our families anyway. And that was inbuilt, um, must be from his parents. And and he wasn't formally trained in Islamic studies, didn't, you know, rudimentaries. But, you know, he was literate in that way that he wanted to um, inculcate within ourselves love of our deen. And he was the first, he was, one, he was the person that gave me my first book in Islam, which I didn't read for two years by Sheikh Khalid and Naqshbandi, a very famous Kurdish revivalist of the 19th century. And he gave me that and, I, and at that point I wasn't obviously. If you're in Glasgow and you're involved in other things, let's just say, uh, it's not up there in the list of priorities, especially if you can't read properly and you kind of have a problem explaining to your parents that, oh, I know you've given me this book, but um, you just get pulled up in this whole thing of where your friends are, where society is. And, um, you know, these things 
are put on the back burner. Um, and you realise that later on, you kind of, you regret it, but you don't because you know that everything comes at the right time. And do you think there was any indications at that time that you were going to pursue a light, you know, a, a, a career or a future in mm. Islamic scholarship, you know, learning, etc. Was there anything in your primary or in high school that was indicating that? Or what trajectory were you on at that point, do you think? No, no, I think there was the opposite because I remember when I was like 10, 11, a lot of scholars come to the house. There's one specific scholar who come. He's set up lots of in institutions and um, charitable um, endowments. And he used to come. And I used to kind of be there in the background, you know, serving food and things. And then and he used always to say for the next like five years, he used to ask my, my father, where's that? Where's your son? Like he would have to make excuses, mm -hmm. and so it was only like and then when I was about sixteen that I kind of reappeared. Seventeen, sixteen, seventeen, that I reappeared. And I think it was to do with a lot of things. I think um, there was, you know, there was this idea that I wasn't happy with the fact that I was restricting myself to the experiences that people um, in the West End, the West, in the West of Glasgow, you have um, Rangers, Celtic, Catholic, Protestant. I was kind of involved as an honorary Catholic in, involved in street violence, do you understand? So once you get involved in that, it, it, one, one fight leads to another, another fight and the fight, next fight is bigger than the previous fight. And before you know it, you're getting to situations where um, now looking back, you're thinking, am I so insignificant that I'm going to, you know, end up another statistic? A lot of my friends ended up, you know, in, in very serious situations. Uh, in fact, when I came back from Syria, there was, uh, I met one of my friends here, uh, again, Great Western Road. He's got a, um, a shop here and he said, oh, did you not hear about such and such a school? He did, you know, it's, I didn't realise what he did. He went into a, a church in London um, naked and he, he had a, a sword and he attacked people. And, and this was famous apparently until I, and when I came back, he said, well, they were asking his school friends what happened and all the rest of it. And then I googled up and I just realised, um, you know, a lot of the friends that I had at that point ended up in very, very difficult, uh, traumatic um, stories for themselves and their families. And, you know, you know, praise Allah that you kind of pulled yourself out or somebody pulled yourself out. Somebody pulled you out of that situation um, because it, it's nonsensical, meaning it's not something that you think through, especially from the midst of it. And, you know, you know, one of the blessings of being in a community like Glasgow is that there's lots of people that, you know, throw out, um, you know, lifelines for people. And one of those was Javid Ali. This is building is, you know, um, run by Javid Ali, Andalus. And uh, he used to organize like circles and things. And, and at one of the circles, they, they were talking about taking a retreat to, or a journey to Turkey. So they had, I think I was about 70 at the time, in 1989, I think, in summer. And so, because a couple of my friends at school were going, they said, why, why don't you come? I went, so went to Istanbul. And all of a sudden, that whole thing of reading the Sunday Times and traveling, it became real because from um, not leaving Glasgow for the whole of my life to all of a sudden being in a different country and realizing that Islam has built some of the most amazing civilizational structures and institutions and, and, and nations, civilizational structures are you know, unparalleled. The idea of ident identity became very interesting for me that I'm not just somebody who's defined by being from the west coast of Scotland involved in gang violence and, and, and Catholic Protestant kind of skirmishes. There's, I'm part of something far bigger and the thing that I'm involved in, you know, connected to which is far bigger is actually 
a belief system which it, I, I was wondering about then. I was thinking, well, I need to think of, I need to think about this. I need to look into this. Uh, while doing other things, it was something in the back of my mind, and I started to, you know, read about Islam. And the Mitchell Library, which is here, I started to go there. Uh, I remember this before internet. This is like this is 1989, and so I went into the library, and the majority of the books there are about Sufism, Islamic history, and Sufism. So I kind of went through the books, read them. It went to you know the last years of my schooling, and I was kind of caught because. I had this kind of past, which was always part of me, but you didn't want to be part of it. So you're kind of slowly untangling yourself towards the end of my school years from that. And then um, by you know the end of the schooling sixth year, I'd kind of decided it wasn't, you know, I wanted to be serious about studying and I went to university and, and um, developed. And, th and that change in your teens, do you think that was... Was there like a singular moment or a point that you remember actually, you know, this is where I'm going to change or was it more a gradual, you know, you know, drip, drip, drip? And so it was very gradual, yeah. very gradual. And it was lots of things, um, you know, there was somebody, I think, I don't know who this is, but somebody said this really deep thing that, you know, the, the, the definition of, of a, of a, a, a disbeliever, disbeliever, a kafir, is a person that thinks that the world is conspiring against them. And the definition of, of a believer is a person that thinks that the world and the universe is conspiring for them, conspiring for you. And uh, I, I definitely think there's so much wisdom. Whoever said it, you know, kudos. This is such a deep, deep statement because there's so many small things that happen that, you know, if I think back, I'm not really sat, sat and thought, well, what, at what point? There's lots of things. In fact, you were at a lecture last week, Dr. Salahuddin Arkadan. I met him first in 1990. He was doing his PhD. So this is right at that point when I'm like 16, 17. And I think Javed had invited him to give a talk. And he gave, uh, he, he, he mentioned something which is actually my first gem, which is he mentioned the Hadith of the Prophet You know, the, the, the warrior, the brave person is not the one that, you know, wins in battle or wins in, in wrestling, but the one that controls their anger at, at the point that they're angry. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to try that out. Because this is at the midst of when I'm just like coming back from a fight, sitting in this halakha, listening to this Le 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 Lebanese sheikh, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to try this. And, uh, you know, in the midst of a street fight, can I control my anger? And it was so difficult. It was just so difficult. And I thought the, the Prophet, who I identify as being my prophet, has said something that has proved to me that I am so weak. You know, even though at the point where you feel that you have so much strength and youth and vigor and heroism and all the rest of it, that's not heroism. And so that change of perspective was, was humbling and it was also challenging because it, it gave you a goal to, to aim towards. And then, you know, at, by that time I started to think, well, the whole you know, kind of look into Islam was needed to be much more serious. And... Um, you know, at that point, I started to read a lot. I started, I mean, I, I read, I remember one of the Ramadans, I think it was 17, 16, 17. I came to the Carrington Street Mosque here. Again, this is like, what, two minutes away? Went to the Everything's bookstore. within one or two it, miles of it. really strange. <laughs> uh, went to the, and Brother Ishaq was there in his bookshop. Book and I said, oh, I need that book, Ihailo Muddin. So he got it. It's four volume, the old, you know, butchered edition. It's like the edition that doesn't make any sense. So in Ramadan, I think in 17 days, I finished the whole thing. And 
it was actually not healthy. I mean, thinking back, it wasn't healthy to read without having somebody advising you on what to read. Because if you read it from beginning to end and you try and apply it, it is very unhealthy spiritually. And not meaning that Hulum al is not a book that you use, but to use books which are written for a different time and place um, and try and apply them without any context and without any filter is actually can damage your health. I realized that I started to eat very little and started to sleep very, you know, you know, a couple hours in the day trying to practice the things that were said this great saint did this and this great saint did that and you were thinking well not looking at the general um, picture but looking at the fact that um, you know you want to you want to actually apply everything you know walking in the desert for 40 days and all this thing you think mashallah how obviously in the context of the hadith like controlling your nafs and I'm going to Mitchell Library all the books are in Sufism um, you were thinking, okay, this is what I need to do. So I was kind of in a very strange situation where, you know, it's pre-internet, pre-any prominent English-speaking scholars. You have to essentially make sense of it and wait for people to come to the city and speak about it. You'll know people speak about Islam face-to-face. -face. Um, cassette players, you would get some lectures on cassettes, but not much. So at that point, I was consuming a lot, I was reading a lot, and, and, and having not read and then reading a lot you know, made me kind of probably antisocial in some ways. You know, I spoke very little, um, reclusive, I would say, as well. So all those things, you know, were part and parcel of everything slowing down. In fact, another thing was I, I injured myself in my last year at school, damaged my ligament playing rugby. And I was in crutches for, like, the last, I think, six weeks of school, just when you're ready to, like, you know, party and all the rest of it. You're in crutches and you can't do much. And then that continued in my, my first year at university. The, the operation went wrong and I was in crutches for majority of my first year at university as well. And so all that meant that, you know, you need to sit down and read. You need to sit down and, and reflect. And that's a blessing. You know, the fact that you think it's not a blessing. You know, thinking back, you know, thinking, yeah, thinking back, that's probably a blessing because everything just slowed down. Just at the moment where I needed to slow everything down, my last year at school, getting injured, you know, I used to play sports for hours on end, like we're talking about nine, ten hours a day. But that all disappeared. No, because you're a really good footballer as well, from what people used to t You're a very keen footballer. In the yeah, keen, I would say good. Oh, other, I think you're a hacker, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's a colloquial term for yeah. fighting while you're playing football. But I think uh, there's so much in what, what you were just saying, and, and, I, and I think, you know, I think... It's interesting, just even the thing, the the first gem that you mentioned about anger. I guess you know you would have heard so many different reminders and talks, even at your dad's house with these scholars. But it was the right thing at the right time that resonated mm. with you, um, which is significant. But also, um, I think people forget, particularly people that are grown up a lot later on, is that you're talking about consuming the books and and you know going to the bookshop locally at the mosque. Um, we didn't really have many people that would guide us or access to people because, you know, painting a picture in, in those days, I remember the issues were, well, actually, a lot of the learned scholars and imams, they didn't speak English. And that was a big issue back in particularly around the 90s. You don't have the internet, you don't have, so that idea of to calibrate or to kind of benchmark, well, you know, and, and books were, there weren't loads either in English, you know, mm -hmm. so it's kind of, you had a small pool of stuff that, um, 
you know you could go into. But I guess one bit that I'm interested in from what you're saying is really this idea that you know, no one's born a scholar. You know, people sometimes forget that. You know that you know they see the end product and the people that have, you know taken many of your lessons and you've taught over the years and you know about seven thousand people you've you, you've taught in fifteen cities through iSyllabus since two thousand nine, which we'll talk a bit about. But that idea that people always have that potential to change and potential to you know turn things around and i think sometimes people feel well you know if it, I, I never had that when i was growing up then it was never going to happen you know and and i think that you know your own example you know certainly signifies you know, even that. even that thing about you know, turning it around i've never kind of spoken about it i mean i'm sure not not many people know about that but that's and i don't make a big thing about it but is if you're thinking back now that you asked it it is kind of interesting that, you know, by the time I was like 14, 15, I was finding it difficult to read. Um, and then people, always people, you know, it's the whole thing, Sheikh, you're, you're, you're kind of gifted from the beginning. And the, even now I find, difficult, I find it difficult reading. Um, I have to concentrate and that's, you know, it's a struggle, but the struggle, with the struggle you get the benefits as well, so. But you're, you're one of the person that's read the most whenever I come to your house, or you know, you've got piles of books and stuff, mm. you know, and I, I remember asking, how do you get through all these books? Mm. Um, mm. Which we'll maybe come on to, because there's a few questions about your kind of periods of learning, which mm. I'm fascinated about. So I, I guess moving on then, so we come up to kind of the early 90s and um, you go to Glasgow University and you study geography and or geopolitics and Arabic. Mm. Um, what what were uni days like? Why did you study that? What was your kind of intention? I was I was happy I got into university, right. so it was. Well, I wasn't happy. I just got into university. I remember, um, I was sent the degree. When was I sent the the confirmation? I was in London, um, and it wasn't a big thing to me. You know the fact that I got in. It's just it's a, you know, while you're doing it, you don't read too much into it. You go into university and you're thinking, what am I interested in? I was interested in geography at school. I was, um, you know, a good teacher. I had a good teacher who kind of showed us the importance of his subject, which was geography. And it was interesting because it was talking about um, politics. It was talking about um, resources, debt. And these are all things that interested me because I was interested in how the world worked. Reading the Sunday Times, obviously, is, is everything's there. And you see um, injustices and you see um, inequalities and you're thinking, why do, why do they exist? And um, you know, geography was for me was and geopolitics was a perfect um, inroad into that. And you know, the first year was majority of it was on crutch. I was in crutches, and um, because I was in crutches, it meant that I had a lot of time to read, not just for the courses I was doing, but also uh, my interest in Islam meant that you know the Mitchell Library had uh, Islamic history, it had Sufism, it didn't have much on general Islam, and so I think at that time it was level eight in the Glasgow University Library. Where I used to sit and study for my own studies there, but also read systematically going through the, all the works on Islam. And there was fascinating works from 1870s translated, you know, the, the Minhaj of Imam Nawawi, you know, translated from the, the, the French to the English and all these kind of things. Like you're, you're thinking, how did the Europeans just map out the whole of human civilization by studying it minute, minutely? It was just so fascinating. And it wasn't just Islam, it was every single culture that was there. You go around the corner and there was Aboriginal cultures and dissecting every single thing about their culture, their language, their rituals, 
And I was thinking, what's the purpose? The purpose is obviously now we know it's about power. You have to map everything out to know exactly what you're dealing with. But through that, I kind of ended up systematically going through all the works there on political Islam, on Islamic history, on theology, and I became self-taught, literate in the Islamic sciences, and I understood, you know, all the things I talk about now, my kind of backdrop of, you know, Islamic theology, history, law, the madhabs, a lot of it is actually from that, that period. Before you went abroad? Bef well before. So the, yeah, at the point I'd left, it was almost a disadvantage knowing the kind of intricacies of what Western scholars have said about Islamic history and the origins of the seerah and hadith criticism because I've kind of gone through the, the, the broad strokes of that narrative anyway. In fact, when I was at Glasgow University, we had, we studied Hagarism. You know, one of the, the books was, um, I think, Patricia Crone, who wrote this thesis about the origin, origin of Islam actually being a, 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 a Jewish sect. So it was Hagarism, not Islam. And, you know, these are theories that are discredited. In fact, Patricia Crone herself withdrew that thesis, the whole idea that Islam came from it, because it didn't make any sense. But that's the level to which, you know, the reading kind of became quite broad. And, and at that point, you know, my interest in Arabic became much more serious as well. I remember, you know, um, you know thinking whether to continue just with, with the geography or whether to kind of go into the Arabic. And um, I just thought that there's a limit to how much you can read in English. You need to get to the sources. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of the next step I took. A very conscious step to say that I need to, you know, delve into Arabic and really take it seriously. What was your kind of career path at that point? Did you think, well, when I finish uni, what am I going to get as a job? Or what, what, what were you kind of, when you're doing that degree um, at Glasgow University, what were you thinking is, what, what was the future going to hold for you? Oh, did you see me? You can, can remember what I looked like. If you saw what I looked like, you would say this person's never going to get a job. Because <laughs> I had no idea about getting, I, I just didn't even think about it. It didn't even cross my path. You weren't bothered about Lily? Bothered? I didn't even think about it, to be honest. I just thought, I'm in university, there's all these books, and I'm just going to keep reading. Yeah. And, um, you know, the whole thing of career path. And, and in fact, the reason my father came when I was 14 to the school is because I didn't have a parents, um, a guidance teacher who, you know, guides your studies. So they say, okay, what do you want to be? You need to do this and that. I didn't get that. And that's what precipitated my father going to the school and saying, my son saying, well, all his other friends have had, you know, okay, if you want to be a doctor, you need to get AA, all this. He's not even had this. Have you missed it? He said, no, no, he's not going to be setting some of the exams. So and I just realized like there's people that trickle through the educational system, quietly just disappearing into the underbelly of society. Because, you know, the education system, I think it's, it's, it, it streamlines producing people for employment. And obviously the people that don't get through that system obviously have to do other jobs, let's just say. It's finally the, the good fortune you had of your dad who mm. went along to that parents evening or, or mm. you know, went approached the school or pushed for you to get your old grade or whatever, you know, and sit through. It was pushed, a lot of people pushed. don't have that. Yeah, I think, I think they were, it was more like, um, okay, not that he can do it, but you shouldn't just give up on him. It was, it was that, that you're in charge of his education. If he's not doing, then then pull him up or whatever. I mean, my father would have said, look, he will do the work. I'll make sure he, he does the work. And um, unfortunately, you don't have, yeah, exactly. You don't have that input from parents. Okay. So did you get involved with the Islamic Society and 
at Glasgow Uni, or were you quite a recluse, or were you? No, no. Um, the Glasgow University. Um, I think my last year at university, we we revived Gumsa, the Glasgow University Business Students Association. Myself and a friend, Zahid Hanif, um, did a very bad job of it, but we <laughs> claim to fame is that we did revive it. Um, I think we did like one event or something. I've still got, in fact, in my kind of all my documents and things, I've still got application forums and all these kind of things. Because I started a couple of years later after mm. you would have left and mm. uh, Gumsa, the uh, Islamic Society, was pivotal in my uni years mm. actually. So I think it went through a metamorphosis. I mean, university, ISOC, you know, students associations are really, 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 really active now. I think they do, they, they do monumental work, I think, um, given the the kind of, especially in terms of what other societies do, given what they have and given their other um, kind of priorities, I think they're pivotal to our kind of social life in the UK specifically. I know that they, they really produce a whole group of um, leaders for ourselves and, um, you know, create some kind of impetus for movements. So take us to your second gem that you've so you're going to take on this My second gem is actually, yeah, it's in that period of Arabic. My first class um, was meeting um, my first proper Arabic tutor. No, in fact, it's not my first. I'll, I'll, before I come to that, um, the end of the first year at university, I decided I need to go into, into, you know, go into Arabic. I want to make that part of my degree. So I went to London. I went to London to study Arabic. It was a two-month course in London um, run by the Muslim Institutes, these famous people that set up the Islamic Parliament, Kalim Siddiqui. So they had, yeah, so so this whole thing of my first year at university, um, I was like obviously looking for people speaking about Islam and, and Kalim Siddiqui came up a number of times get, trying to cr create this kind of momentous for a, momentum for a um, Islamic Parliament, Muslim Parliament in the UK. So I got involved in that and then they had this Arabic course. I went down and one of my teachers was um, Muhammad Abu Layla, rahimahullah. He was an Azhari. He was the head of Kulitud-Din in, in, in Al-Azhar. But he was kind of a, um, a replacement for the Arabic teacher who'd become ill and they brought him in. He was an Arabic teacher. In fact, our eight weeks was him telling us about his life story and his all his kind of escapades while studying. And this is a man, if you think of it, like the glasses are like thick, thicker than any glass you've ever seen. And to telling us about the fact that he, rather than taking the bus, he, he would spend the money for the bus on a book and walk the seven hours to school or something. So we ended up doing really badly in Arabic. But, you know, <laughs> when I finished it, he said, you have to take me as my, you as, and me as your sheikh. <laughs> so during that period, two months, I ended up like kind of, um, you know, meeting a lot of Islamic groups and things in London. But then I came back to Glasgow University, transferred to do the Arabic course as well. And, and the second gem is from that period, James Montgomery, Professor James Montgomery, I now know, is in Cambridge University teaching a professor of Arabic studies. And the reason he, he's, he's part of this is because, you know, at that period of my time, Arabic became a passion. And what I remember about him is that he has a very broad Scottish accent. And he used to teach his poetry. So he used to teach his Aritha and all the different types, categories of Arabic poetry. And he's doing this broad Scottish accent. And he's he's published a couple of books on Antara. 
and, and this is Mu'allaqat. So later on when I went to study in the Middle East, in, in Mahad al-Fat and other places, literature, you know, when I used to read it, I used to remember him. I used to remember the fact that he instilled within me the love of the Arabic language. Because I remember I asked him, said, how long is it going to take me to learn Arabic? He said, 20 years. <laughs> and, um, you know, people nowadays say, well, it's, it's, um, it's a year to study the six levels and you're fine and you can read anything you want. I realized he knew more, more about Arabic than anybody else because what he said is true. The Arabic language is so deep that even a master of Arabic language has to consult the dictionaries to make any sense of some of the literature that we have. So this, this is in London he's teaching you or this is back in... This in Glasgow. Glasgow, Glasgow. Yeah. Mon uh, James Montgomery, he's, he, he's, he was teaching there um, 91, 1991, 92. And he's a Muslim? I have no idea. I mean... Uh, he, he was traditionally an orientalist, wasn't he? he, he yeah, Antara, he's done all this yeah. stuff on poetry. And one of the lines was, Wudittu, uh, was I, I would love to, Wudittu taqbeel al-suyufi li'annaha lama'at. He said, like, Antara is famous for war poetry. He says, Wudittu taqbeel al-suyufi li'annaha lama'at. He said, I would love to kiss the, the, the swords for they remind me of the, the shining of your teeth when you smile. So even in the midst of war, <laughs> all he can think of is from the sparks, from the, the, the swords, he can, all he remembers is his, his beloved and her teeth as they sparkle. So I was thinking like Arabic language is so, so deep, the metaphor and the similes, and he would kind of instill that within us because he was a master of the Arabic language. Poetry, classical poetry, this is Mu'allaqat, Antar ibn Shaddad is, from the, the, the poems that they used to, you know, said that they used to hammer onto the Kaaba because of their eloquence. And for me, that was an interesting period because, you know, the, the time of studying Arabic at Glasgow University, also John Matic, Professor John Matic, very famous Arabist, under whom um, Salahuddin Arkadan did his PhD. He was here for his PhD. Um, he was also one of these old school academics. And so when we studied Arabic, it wasn't the modern Arabic, it was a kind of classical system of learning the grammar and then doing study texts on classical Arabic um, works and translating them. And, and, and it was kind of um, completely different from how Arabic is taught now. It's all about buying tatoes and, you know, purchasing this and doing that. It, it, then it was all academic. And, and did you learn that way? Did it come quite naturally mm. to you when, when you threw yourself into the Arabic or mm. did you have to grind and was it hard or was it something that... You just because there is those things that some things that you're good at or take naturally they become a lot easier and you can do it and some subjects which some people's bit of their brains it's just they find a lot more challenging was it something naturally that you were drawn to and found no I, easier I, to it, learn it was not easy and it was definitely not something um, you know given you know God given let's just say it was something that requires um, patience and perseverance. And I realized that when I started to compare myself with other people, that I could see studying and memorizing. I was, I was a Mahd al-Fatih, and we had, used to have a Qur'an. Uh, we used to hifl, and then we used to have to recite the Qur'an. And there's like 60 people in, in our specific halaqa, and then the teacher would say, okay, start the page that you're supposed to have memorized. And then some of the Arabic stu Arab students at the front, like Algerians and Moroccans, they would, you know, their turn would be the end. So go through, and by about 40 minutes, you'd be at the front. And they'd say, okay, what do we need to memorize? They'd get the mushaf out. And they hadn't memorized the page. And within like seven minutes, they've memorized the page. And that page, I would have started tw uh, two weeks ago. 
I had to prepare like two weeks in advance to get it. So then I realized, look, oh my goodness. And when you realize that, you're thinking, is it worth it? So all through that period, I was thinking, if I'm not gifted in this, should I just give up? Meaning, and I was mistaken, meaning gifted, meaning having a memory which is quick. And I thought, no, no, because, um, you know, when we're asked to deliver, I can do as, as well as these people that are very, very um, sharp uh, in terms of memory. But perhaps in terms of understanding, they're not. You know, it's, it's something, if you're given something, you, that may be, you know, balancing something else that you're not given. And so definitely Arabic language, any language, in fact, is not something I'm gifted with. Um, I mean, I've asked you this before, but I mean, do you have a photographic memory? Absolutely. The whole point is no. <laughs> I'm, no but then I, mean, I have to sit no, and watch. I, I've seen, cause I've, I've obviously spoken to a number of people I've studied and, mm. you know, you know, sometimes even doing like radio shows and things in the past and they'll come with their books and they'll okay, pick that one or they'll revise that for a week or two. Mm. And I've seen you people will, you know, you almost pluck out a letter about this book mm. and then this quote and it's almost, it, it it's, it's deeply ingrained, right? And it's no, just it's deeply ingrained and, doesn't mean it was photographic. I and mean, the whole point is... In, how, in, how have you been, how did you, you know, how were you able to kind of, consume that because there are so many you know over the years consistently you know people will ask you questions or references and, and you'll I mean even in these books and in, in this room you know I've heard anecdotes of people who have said well you know you'll quote and you'll just pick a book and say oh yeah I did this 20 years ago and haven't looked at it since but it's almost mm. word for word so for for a lay person I mean how how does that happen how do you explain that how's have you been able to do that I mean, it's ingrained, but it's ground ground into that. You're ground into the fact that it's ingrained. It's it's a you have to apply yourself. And um, you know, I could take a book from you know a large collection and know the volume, kind of roughly know which page to open it, and the muscle is there. I've, you know, when you're engage, engaged in in that kind of, um, I mean, deeply engaged in that, then it becomes natural. You know a book, you know the chapters, you know the kind of volumes and you know roughly where that would be discussed and you kind of you know within a page or two you'll get it but that's based upon constant practice and application and that's time so it's not the fact that um, and I've opened a book up and I've I know the page but now I do like there's books I've studied I know the page and where the issue is and I can see exactly where it is but it's not photographic that's because I've I've sat there went through it word for word and then I've summarized it and I've made a mind map of it or, or I've created you know everything I studied I rewrote and reformatted and you know got lots of you know um, you know resources here which I were essentially my notes every book was rewritten and reformatted and so it's, it becomes ingrained because you've taken on, you've taken ownership of it and you know in the mid in the Middle East the whole system is based upon um, learning poems, which encapsulate the sciences. I used to memorize the poems, but then understand the poems on my own terms. And so when I remember issues, it's based on the fact that I've internalized the poem and its content and, it, and its kind of context. Uh, and, and that requires work. I mean, there's no, I mean, I was telling my daughter actually, um, just last week, that I, you know, how I used to study. And I used to say that, you know, before the exams, especially in the Middle East, I never studied like a week before the exam, I didn't touch a book because you you should have you should have it ready well before you're asked about it. 
Um, so yeah, about a week before the exam period in, in, in like Mahad al-Fajr for example, I didn't touch any of the books because you have to be ready for it, you know, well in advance. But other students, it was a day before they would be memorizing and memorizing. But did they continue um, internalizing? I don't, I don't think so. And, and that probably takes us quite well to one of the other gems which you've got from a line of poetry. We're changing the order a wee bit, but mm -hmm. do you want to mention that one? Because I think that probably fits in quite well with... Which one is this? The fourth... Uh, the okay, Al-Mutanabbi. Yeah, yeah, so this is, this is an interesting one. This is Mutanabbi. In fact, this is in the midst of my studies in Damascus. This was um, Abu Ubaidah, Umar al-Misri, Hafizahullah, taught us um, Arabic um, language, taught us fiqh, usul, um, you know. Someday I, I, I considered to be like my father. A lot of my teachers I considered to be like my father in terms of their concern for us. And he was, he was an amazing, is still an amazing man. I remember when I graduated, I gave him uh, one of my um, Batan Shawal Kameezes, you know, from the northeastern province. Because my father brought it, it was like a big woolly thing. He used to complain about the cold, he was very old and uh, he couldn't keep too well. So I gave him this and he was so happy. I used to wear it after I'd graduated. But he was somebody that had this quality that almost all of our teachers had, which is that they taught. But with the teaching was this uh, instilling of concern for the students and their welfare. And, you know, asking them to do above, go above and beyond. And, you know, I remember this was something he mentioned at the beginning of when we were studying um, commercial law, fiqh al And he was just basically telling people, get ready, you know, you have to apply yourself. He said, لا تحزبن المجد تمرة أن تأكلها. Do not consider um, ilm, he said, لا تحزبن العلم تمرة أن تأكلها. Do not consider knowledge to be like a, a date, you know, a fruit that you take, pluck and you eat. لن تنال المجد or علم حتى تلعق الصابرة. You'll never attain to knowledge until you have to chew on cactus. In other words, it's not an easy task. But when I was reading it, I thought, that didn't sound right. And what he'd done is he'd changed the words. Knowledge, because Lamotanabi is talking about grandeur and valor and courage and, and success. His word was all about courage. He was, in, he was kind of um, prompting the sultans and the khalifas to fight and be, val you know, to have valor in fighting. And, you know, he's basically saying, you'll never attain to victory and success until you go through difficulties. When my teacher was saying that, I was, he, he was speaking to me because I was looking around and thinking all these people they are really quick-witted and their memory is fantastic. It must be about me. Mm. And in fact, I remember I, I, I got really good marks in his usul exam and he read them out and I think one of the students said, why did he get all that good, good mark? And he said, well, he's got glasses on. And he just said, Nothing, none of your business. Do you think he got it because his glasses were nice? <laughs> so, the, you know, our, our teachers had our back, but they had the back for everybody. So this is the thing that, you know, with study, they knew it was difficult and they knew they had to train us up to represent our faith and to really, um, you know, take, the, take the, the knowledge and the kind of, this, this kind of impetus forward. And they realized that a lot of people dropped out. I remember when I was there, um, you know, we'd always get Westerners enrolling into the course in Mahad al-Fatih. And by, you know, the first year, they dropped out because it was tough. In fact, up until I got to, I think, sixth year, there wasn't a, a, a week where I thought, okay, this is the week I'll just, I'll just say, okay, it was good. I'll just pack it in. So it was physically difficult. I mean, in, in fact, my, 
50, at the end of my fifth year, I couldn't continue into my sixth year because um, I had really excruciating back pain. I had a slipped disc and sitting for you know seven hours a day was just not possible. I went to see the Mudir, Abdul Fattah, um, and I said to him, look, can I get dispensation to X, Y, and Z? And he said, no, you can't. If you can't sit and you can't attend the class, you cannot continue. And, um, and that's it. He just said that. He didn't give me any alternatives. And so I had to leave. Um, so the year that I left, um, I stayed in Damascus. I revised and I taught. So I taught people in the Mahad all the content that I'd studied um, for the five years up until that time. Uh, again, it was an amazing blessing because it gave me time to um, you know, revise, to teach, to study you know, extra classes outside the Mahad as well. Then I came to the sixth year, you know, alhamdulillah, I was a bit more able to attend the classes, so finished. And it was that fact that so many people give up. And yet, glory, knowledge, all these things are not something that you can attain to just by sitting back and, and imagining. That's so why a lot of people nowadays think, you know, you know, they want to do a bit of part-time study and then they want to start giving a, a very serious religious advice. Um, it's not how it works. You have to, you have to have, you know, what skin in the game. You have to have put something into it to be able to understand how difficult this is. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it, in terms of? Because I know your back injury troubled you from for many years, even when you came back to to the UK. Um, but you know, it kind of parallels or mirrors, I guess, the ligament injury you had at university as well. At you know, at Glasgow University, mm -hmm. in terms of, is that point where maybe you need to slow down or a little mm -hmm. kind of reconfigures where you're going a wee bit and mm. maybe you know down the line that is something that then mm. did benefit you mm. um i'm interested in this you know in the next kind of few questions is around this aspect of your studying abroad and you've you've touched upon that already now most of that i think was in in damascus tell us about this institute because i think that is so formative in terms of where you were and um your journey to to there, I guess, because you'd been to different places. You went to Turkey initially, and mm. then some other places. I mean, I'm just thinking those days again. You you would have been one of the few people that we knew from Scotland or Glasgow that would have left abroad to study. There weren't many, mm. the few brothers um, that we knew that that went. But it wasn't a common thing. As it was particularly in the late '90s, where you know it became quite trendy. Actually, loads of British mm. and Westerners then went. So you, you, Javed, and some of these people were kind of the early kind of in Brother Shokat was, mm. you know, the early people I came across that certainly had gone abroad to study Islamic sciences, which was interesting. Um, tell us about, take us from that journey from Glasgow University to then where you went in the, you know, to mm. study in the Islamic world and where you ended up. And tell, uh, really keen to hear a little also about where you ended up in Damascus and mm. the Institute and why there and what was unique about it. I mean, it, it was it was not plotted out. There was nothing planned. There was this this desire that you've learnt Arabic, and you've and and I had this palpable a kind of feeling of injustice that also you know tempered my Islamic studies. The reason why I was interested in Islam it wasn't a, it was a, it wasn't just a spiritual thing. It was it was a thing that that Islam has a lot to say about the world and how the world's ordered. So. You know, when I was at university, I was reading a lot of um, politics, a lot of anarchism, all this kind of stuff. I was kind of 
reading, when I was saying reading, I was reading not just Islamic things, I was reading lots of things. And, you know, when I went abroad, you know, that was part of what I was looking at, injustices, and I was looking at um, societies and how they're being dis dis dismantled from within and, and, and from outside. And, you know, one of the things I did do is I went back to Turkey for three years. And it was almost, partly it was to do with Islamic studies, you know, it was my kind of, I've had a long-standing love affair with Turkey, um, because my first introduction to Islamic civilization and and um, but sort of, I mean, Turkey wasn't trendy in those days, you know. <laughs> it wasn't. And it Turkey wasn't. was very much looked down upon. Things that were mm. coming out of Turkey was, you know, mm. substandard, etc. Now, you know, I guess, mm. you know, this is yeah, nineteen eighty-nine. My first trip to Turkey, yeah. I went back in nineteen ninety-four until nineteen ninety-seven. Um, and, and that period was very much, it was, it was tempered with a kind of a political, um, there was a kind of political aspect to that as well. It was um, President Erbakan was introducing um, policies that are now seen to be revolutionary. He was introducing gold and silver currency. He was setting up a, a commonwealth of Muslim nations, um, non-Arab Muslim nations as well. And I was fascinated by that because, it, again, it wasn't just a spiritual thing. I felt Islam had a lot to give. And that, for me, that moment was very much at the forefront of that. Um, 1997, in February 1997, was the kind of what they call the postmodern coup, where he was removed by the by the army. And I, you know, having spent time with a num number of very prominent scholars there at that time, had to leave because in fact everybody left. Scholars, great scholars, like one of my teachers, Professor Esa Joshan, he left as well. He was. People see assassinated in, in Australia in a car crash. He was targeted. So there's all these things happening. And, and I was kind of left. I remember this was um, in the midst of, I can't remember when, what month it was, but it was very cold. I had this kind of very flimsy raincoat. And I was sitting in Fatih thinking about where to go to study. And I wanted to go to Syria. It was like I wanted to go, but I'd, I'd been refused an entry visa from um, Istanbul. So I was sitting in Fatih in Charshamba. Charshamba is the kind of, you know, people know about it. I was sitting in the burek parlor where you have burek, which is like kind of pastry. I was sitting there having tea and then there's somebody walked in, ginger beard. He looked, could have been Turkish, but he wasn't. He started, you know, ordered something I could tell he wasn't Turkish. He spoke and I, I sat next to him and said, okay. F uh, ended up being an American convert, traveling around the Middle East, like, and I don't, still don't know who he is. And I said, I'm in this situation where I need to, you know, I wanted to go to Syria, it's blocked. And he says, yeah, it's because of the Kurdish insurgents and this and he knew everything and I thought okay and, and I said okay I, I just want to go somewhere else and he said oh go to go to Yemen go to Tarim I said Yemen I know I know Yemen but Tarim I said Hadramaut I said I know Hadramaut because I studied Arabic so I was in the grammar books and then he gave me the name of Habib Umar Sheikh Habib Umar Hafizahullah and so he drew a map I've still got it on a piece of paper in this cafe in Istanbul and I was like freezing he was freezing as well I gave him my raincoat by the way because he looked freezing more in need of it he um, drew this map, get to Sana'a, from Sana'a it's like a 17-hour taxi drive, get to Sayoun and then you'll go from there, and when you get to Tarim, which is a city in Hadramaut, ask for Habib Omar, Sheikh Habib Omar, and go, and he'll let you. And this is exactly what I did. Went to the bookshops, got an English version of um, Lonely Planet, looked up Yemen, looked up the visa requirements, looked up Hadramaut, and I said, okay, it looks doable. Um, and I, I booked a one-way flight through Egypt to, um, you know, 
eventually go to Yemen. But when I got to Egypt, I decided to enroll in Azhar. <laughs> Just <laughs> as you're I'm passing here. through. <laughs> I thought I'm here. I thought maybe this American's like, he's like, he's, he's leading me down a, a blind alley. So I went to Azhar, enrolled, took about four weeks. It was like a hellish process. Got in and I think a week into the classes, I just thought this is not for me. Chain smoking at the, at the, at the doors of the, of the lesson. Not you. Not me, but also not Islam. This no, is no. not. Were you chain smoking? No, no, not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, I've not who, smoked for a long time. So. Who, who's chain smoking? So the teachers. Students. The students. And I can imagine the teachers. And nothing, I'm not saying, I'm giving a fatwa here, it's yeah. a podcast. But the point is, it wasn't. It wasn't what you were looking for. It wasn't what I was looking for. And that and ended up continuing the journey to Sana'a. I went to Sana'a. Um, ended up actually staying there for about six months. And then I went to Hadramawd. Went through for, for about a year. Went back to Sana'a. Stayed there for another um, about four or five months while getting ill and stuff on the way. Um, and so that journey of study was essentially off, off the roadmap. And I got to Tareem. There was a brother, um, Thaqib Mahmoud. Um, he's a sheikh now, he's my, even though I've not seen him for like 12 years, he's one of the most beloved people to me because um, we got to Tareem and we kind of met each other. There was only two of us who spoke English. And um, I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here to study. And I'm very serious at this point. I'm not like I am now. And I said, we're going to have to speak English for a week. And after that, no English. So we were chit-chatting and getting like off like a house on, house on fire, like really friendly and all the rest of it. It's from... Um, London, so we're chit-chatting all the rest of it, and then the week passes, and obviously I, I know what I've said, and that's it, no English. And then I think it created a lot of tension. <laughs> and he's Marshall, he's big. And like, yeah. If he was in Glasgow, he'd, he'd be a tough guy. Yeah. And so it was like, it was, and I, I didn't back down. Okay. Even though we could have chatted for hours, we were not there to chat, yeah. and uh, you know, and uh, amazing memories of that. Um, but to study, so you know that period studied, you know, you know, alhamdulillah studied there. He studied as well, but he told me about Mahad al-Fat because the questions about Mahad al-Fat. So tell us about that. Oh, tell yeah. people that know he it. He said, you kind of yeah, he said, oh, there's some people in 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 Syria studying, and if you want to go st study, okay, there's this place and that place and that, and there's this other place, but it's like. Don't like it's not. It's like he described it as some kind of citadel, some kind of fortress. Like the way he was talking about it, I thought, what what on earth is this? Because he said you can get into here, you can get into there, you can do the studies there. Yeah, just do the paperwork. And he kept saying Mahad al Fat, and 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 I said, okay, no, no, you won't go there because it's too tough, and they like they won't let anybody in, and all. That. I was thinking, what what on earth is this? So I got to Damascus. Um, I was very ill at this time. I had to go to. UK to sort of my kidneys. <laughs> this is a kind of side point, okay. which um, my parents didn't know I was in Yemen actually at this point as well. So there's a whole um, issue going on there. Because I've got, I've got uh, just digressing, I've got a number of anecdotes which I, I was going to fact check with you. Mm. Um, and you're talking about illness. Was this anything to do with the Hajj kind of period? No. No, no, this is well before. Well, let's digress and then we'll come back to yours. <laughs> So one of the anecdotes I heard was um, you'd left Glasgow mm. and then um, people hadn't seen you for a number of years mm. and uh, then some of the brothers met you at Hajj. Oh, this was when I was in Damascus, yeah. This yeah, I, I this later on. And they found you lying on the side of the road. Yeah, let's just say I was lying. <laughs> so they're saying... I was, I was an officially a butcher. 
so some of the, so it tells a bit about that because basically some of the West End guys here brought up with you recognised you lying on the streets yeah, they took in Hajj. So just tell us that anecdote and yeah, this was in Damascus. Fast forward a bit, a couple of years into Damascus, I had this urge to go on Hajj. I was with um, Sheikh Amr, and I was with somebody else from he's from just outside Edinburgh, and uh, we we're walking past. Um, the old citadel in Damascus and I just got this amazing urge to go on Hajj and this was like four weeks before Hajj season and by that time all the kind of visa things were going and I just started to ask how can I go on Hajj realize it's too late to go through UK I was a UK citizen you couldn't go through Syria so it was like off it's off the table there's no discussion but I just kept going to the embassy and speaking to people outside once you speak to people outside the embassies you realize there's an underbelly of official contacts that you can but you just need to keep coming and meeting people and speaking to people and in the end I got this visa as an honorary Syrian butcher which meant that I was in a, in a taxi driving but the problem was I couldn't leave Syria with that because there was all this the clamp down on people traveling by land so I was stuck with a visa but I wasn't allowed to leave and so I had to find out I found a, I found a way of getting to Amman and meeting these butchers, Syrian butchers in Amman and they could continue the travels in, on, a, on a taxi. So I ended up going, um, you know, that's another story, I don't want to go into that, it's like yeah. weird. Met them in Amman and we kind of got to, you know, Makkah just in time for Yom Tarwiyah, which is the day you leave for Mina. And it was a taxi with four of us um, stopping, like they stopped every half hour for tea. And these are men, <laughs> these, are, these are like people like in their 70s, 60s, 70s, who couldn't slaughter a sheep because they're just not physically able to, but they had visas. And then they would stop every half an hour for a toilet break, obviously, and then drinking tea. And I was saying, we're going to miss the Hajj. And so, the you know, people talk about patience and Hajj. I learned about it there because I thought these guys just love their tea so much that we're going to miss Hajj. But we got, we got there and finished the Hajj. We had no official residence in Mina or Mecca. Even we had nowhere to stay and finished the, the, the Hajj um, rites. And I was afterwards, like, after the, the adrenaline, you know, wears out, you've just finished the whole process. And I was just sitting outside, and then, I think it was Faisal? Was it Faisal? Yeah, he just looked at me, I looked at him. I didn't say, look, I need some help, but he kind of took me into the hotel and cleaned me up a bit. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, so going back to, okay, you had these kidney stones and that whatever story, and then so you were... Um, Damascus then mm. you're asking people and yeah know. so he uh, Sheikh Thaqib he kept mentioning it and then when I got to Damascus um, went back to UK got my visa went to Damascus 1990 um, and applied to Mahad al-Fat I went there and had a look and it was interesting because the first day there was like 3,000 people attending to apply for the first year and it was a surreal experience because the Mudir, Sheikh Abdul Fattah, Bism, he basically had everyone lined up in batches of like 500, just walking past and touching them, saying, next, you can go into the next phase. Is it like, I've not watched Hunger Games, but I can imagine <laughs> this is almost like, this is like, he was onto something. So he would just touch them on the sh It's almost like he's saying, this person's of the right material. And how would he know? What was the... I have no idea. So this is like, I need to ask him okay. at some point. And then... So, so the, this was picking who was going to get entry into... Not it. entry, this is getting to the next stage. 
the assessment process. Yeah, so then checking who you are okay. and, uh, you know, do you have a family of scholars and all the rest of it. And then after that, you'd have a written test. And then, you know, they would kind of, there was kind of three processes. And then in the end, I found myself in, in the first year. I'm just thinking, what on earth am I doing here with like 90 people in a small room? The heat and the, the, the places where you sit are so cramped, not designed for people from Glasgow with their sense of entitlement and privilege. And, but um, tell us about the institute itself, what was unique about it? Is, it, is it well known, well regarded? Well, it's, it's, it's the main centre of Hanafi fiqh in, 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 in Syria. And the, great, the Greater Levant, very famous because it's, 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 it's the kind of produce of a whole um, school of scholarship in Damascus that preserved, you know, centuries of, of learning through scholars and Sheikh Saleh Farfur Rahimahullah who established it was essentially in a line of scholars. His own teacher, Sheikh Badruddin Hassani Rahimahullah, was considered to be one of the greatest scholars of hadith and, and, and Islamic sciences in the Middle East of his age, of that century. Um, but he was one amongst many. And so Mahd al-Fat essentially encapsulated the old way, of, the old rigour of study and perseverance and meticulousness in preserving the sciences with all the old books, the old methods, um, not cutting any corners. It prided itself in that. And um, because of that, it had very strict criteria of entry and also it just culled people. I mean, I just realised this is brutal. I remember Sheikh Abdul Fattah Bizam, um, just before one of our exams, people were coming in for the exams and nine o'clock is the last time you can enter. There's people coming in five, a couple of seconds after, like, I'm saying nine o'clock, that bell went, that door's closing. And the, the exam's starting five minutes afterwards, you could easily let them in. This person does not get in, they fail the year. And he's standing there saying, next year, my son. Like, you've, you've, you've missed it. Like, you want to come in? No, you're not coming in. And I thought, that's harsh. But the reality is that he, you know, may Allah preserve him, you know, is involved in the whole issue of Syrian situations, um, painful to talk about. Um, you know, but he kept that institution um, going through, you know, um, very difficult times in Syria. This is, we're talking about in the 80s, 90s. And it needed that iron fist, in, in a sense, to keep the standards up. And is that teaching people that, you know, this is something we're not messing about here in terms of what you're learning and the, you know, yeah, the so characteristics myself, and values yeah, that you need? You, you, you know, it's yeah, absolutely. yeah, because even myself, I, I'm thinking, just give me a bit of leeway for my sixth year. Like, and he said, no, mm. they didn't give, he didn't give me a pep talk and what to, you know, how, how it will be better for you. And he said, no, no, you can't do that because this is the rules. Because if you do it, somebody else is going to want to do it. And that, I think that was really important. Yeah. Well, and what was the kind of daily, you were there for about six years, weren't you? So what was the kind of the routine, the people have a romantic idea of, you know, people that went abroad to study, you know, back in the 90s and what it was like. I mean, what, give us a picture, can you paint a picture of what was your kind of daily routine like? What was kind of um, your pattern like? while you're there as a student? Then. I mean, to be honest, it's, it's a vague memory. It's, it's, they're nice memories, they're vague. I mean, I have to think back. Seven lessons a day for six, in, yeah, six days a week. And, you know, and um, 
Well, from Fudger, you're getting up at Fudger and then no, doing I mean, personal my own, study? Or? I mean, personal study and revision is a, a separate thing. I mean, that's... I did I did what I needed to do. But what was that kind of routine then for like for you? Mm. What was your pattern like? That's between me and myself. But in terms of what... <laughs> I had to attend its seven lessons in the, in the Mahad. Okay. So apart from that, you had, I think, seven o'clock to about... With Zohar time, half past one, we had classes. Um, and then, obviously, you have to apply yourself to that, but also you have to have a passion outside um, the the content, which is I firmly believed in the fact that you have to. Even though our, our teacher said you shouldn't study anything extraneous to the content of the of the mahad, I took it as being something necessary to study one you know deep dive into one su subject every year. Mm. So I'd have private classes on those topics, um, and kind of you know, purchase all the, all the main books on that, you know, go through the books, study different perspectives and then, you know, argument and that. And you had to kind of spread your time so you could sustain that. So I heard you were a recluse back in those days. Um, and I think that's maybe where you developed some of your back injuries as well, in terms of used to... Well, the story I heard, which I know you don't like talking, is that you just basically you sit on the floor in, around your books for hours and hours and hours, and then you'd damage your back as a result of. I have no idea. I'm not a orthopedic surgeon. Okay. Is that who's it? Does that sound? Like no, no. It I, could I, be. I know. I mean, if you're, it, it was a passion. So let's just say, if it's a passion, you're not thinking what you're doing. So you need you d you do what you need to do, as they say. Because people, again, these are third-handed. You don't need to comment on this. So we bumped into a famous scholar, worldwide scholar, who basically said he was also in Damascus around that time and he goes, he heard two people in terms of the expats, the ones that were just dossing and messing about all the time mm. <laughs> and they heard about you who just, nobody would see you, just study. And he goes, I decided to stay away from both of them. So that was one thing. Um, but in terms of the, you know, people would say that, um, you know, almost you'd have your kind of, uh, daily timetable hour by hour and you know you'd have your friday or juma which is just a bit of a break time and the rest of the time and you'd actually admonish some of the other experts for just kind of messing about or wasting time because at the end of that you you top the year wasn't it and again another thing i've heard is that there's only one or two people that were non-arabs that ever became top of the year and you were the second or something so these are kind of things i've other people have said, and it's, it's, I know you'll be modest enough not to maybe comment on that. But is there anything you'd like to say about that? <laughs> Don't recognise. <laughs> I mean, obviously, life is as it is. So there might be. Yeah, so might be exaggerations. Well, exaggerations. Okay. Well, I'll assume that. I, I, I know. Admit, I didn't admonish anybody. Okay. I didn't meet anybody, so how can I admonish anybody? No, because apparently you had one hour on the Juma. <laughs> that would be your social time. No, I mean, everybody's got the reasons for, for studying. Were, I, and I guess my focus is you're focused. Yeah, obviously I was focused. I mean, the whole point is I'm saying I, I took this seriously because I think it wasn't just a personal journey. It's, it's, a, it's a journey I think Ardeen gives us insights that need to be shared and, and, tra and transferred onto other people. And, you know, the thing that impressed that upon me is the teachers that they, I mean, it's, it's humbling to sit with people who have sacrificed so much 
you know, and then not to give even a small portion of that back. That's what's humbling for me. So at no point was, did it cross my mind that I'm sacrificing or I'm going above and beyond. If anything, it's, 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 I'm, I'm falling really, really short of what is expected. I remember when I finished my studies in Damascus, the teachers basically refused to teach me. They said, you need to go, you need to go back. You're not welcome here. Meaning they put the effort in for a reason, which is that you go back and you, and you give back some of the investment that they put into you in terms of time, effort, advice. You need to go back to your own countries and, and um, you know, serve other people. Because I remember be, being on the other side, being in, in the UK, and we, know, we knew people that had gone abroad mm. and they'd come back maybe once a year or every couple of years and you said, when are you coming back? To, you know, and they said, well, I need to do a wee bit more. I need to study a wee bit more. And then, they were, you know, one of the criticisms that, you know, these students of knowledge would be, well, they're, they're just in this path of constant knowledge that mm. when are they going to come back and give something back? We're, you know, we're desperate for people mm. that are English speaking brought up in our context so um, did that ever kind of was that a, you know something that you were conscious of in terms of actually because in some ways I, I can imagine it's quite addictive to be around those scholars and you know constantly in that path of knowledge uh, and making the jump to come back you know it sounds like your teachers kind of said well it's time to go back now but is that something you saw with other students around you etc or were you always quite clear this is when I'm coming back? Because I think that was something that, um, you know, certainly as a community being left behind, saying, well, actually, we need you back, you, know, you and other, you know, people that have gone abroad. Um, what are your kind of thoughts around that in terms of, because it, it's, it's a pivotal moment in the 90s when a lot of the mm. British and American people were going to the, um, to the Middle East, etc., to study, and we saw that you know with a lot of the prominent scholars worldwide that have come back, and and you know, they were formative years. But there was something in the nineties where that was kind of quite novel and quite unique. So, what are your kind of reflections around that? You know, of what was going on at that time? I mean, I kn I knew of people who were studying in Damascus, for example. Lots of people I knew of who were studying. I never met them. Um, ended up, funnily enough, meeting them in Glasgow. So people that. I'd the prominent scholars, I'd, I'd met them here in this library rather than in the same city in Damascus, for example. I was aware of the fact there was lots of people and, you know, I, I, I always, even though I'm not involved in a lot of things, I keep abreast of what's happening and what the word in the street is. I kind of like to keep my finger, finger on the pulse in most things. And I just kept myself focused on my own um, pathway. My, my own pathway, to be honest, wasn't I need to go back and study and t you know, to teach. It was I that didn't cross my mind because I didn't think um, I didn't have a plan like the whole thing. Did I have a plan when I went to university for a profession? No, I didn't. When I was studying Islamic studies, did I have a plan to, on what I was going to do when I came back? No, I didn't. As soon as I got back here after having studied, did I have a plan? No, I didn't. Um, because I believe I believe you. I mean, it's just a weird thing, but you just need to give up a little bit of your agency and um, allow the water to find its own level, um, which is the complete opposite of what I, I should be saying, which is that you need to plan out and strategize, which is, there's a place in st for strategy and, and uh, you know, planning, but there's also this aspect that everything comes in its, in its proper time if you have the right intention. So, I mean, you can't give that advice to people because it, it has no time frame, but you can have it in your own mindset because 
If you reflect on the Quran, you find like a lot of the stories are, you know, almost instantaneous, but they play out over long times of period. Like the story of Yaqub and Yusuf, it's like they the dream, and then the, the completion of the dream is like so such a long period of time. The dua of the Prophet Musa and the Quran saying it's been answered. It sounds as if it just happened. He did the dua and it, it was answered, and Pharaoh was destroyed. It took forty years, and so. That was because the intention was pure. And in the end, what is written will happen. I, I, I think we don't take our theology seriously enough, like the idea of Qadan Qadar. Um, and so when I was kind of planning the trip back, I was never um, apprehensive of what I needed to do or what, what needed to be done, because I didn't think I would do it. Like you're not important enough to be the person that does something. You fit into a, a whole, community that's essentially moving towards the same direction. You're a small, a small facilitator, I would say, in that process. Hmm. Having studied, you know, for the many years that you did, what would you say is the key thing people misunderstand about Islamic knowledge or scholarship or fiqh or whatever it might be? What, you know, all the years that you've studied, if you were to say, look, let, let me distill down what people are just totally missing mm -hmm. or not really getting when it comes to Islamic knowledge, what, what would you say? I would say, well, there's lots of things, but the thing off the top of my head would be that it's, in fact, this is a course, I, I did a course in the Art of Persuasion just recently. And while I was, I was do, I do these courses, but I always do them, make the content up as I'm going along. I don't know if you know this. So every week's like four weeks of courses and I'm the content I'm actually doing while I'm going along and towards the last week of the course which is the finale of the course I came to the realization that the, the, the Prophet and the Quranic text is saying at its core I believe I'm not seeing this anywhere I've had it explained to me in this way but I believe at the core of it is the fact that the Quran and the Prophet are presenting value propositions to people in other words a value proposition is something that you give to somebody to show them that that's, it's in their benefit to do this. Um, and every dictate of our faith essentially is a value proposition for our benefit. So the thing that people miss, just coming back to that point, is the fact that they think that they have to, you know, sacrifice and they have to live in abject, in abject poverty or be kind of otherworldly. And when in fact, the religion and the teachings are for your benefit. You know, in other words, the, the the telos of Islam, the focus of it, and the purpose and maqsad of it is for your benefit. And Imam Ghazali talks about the saada. The whole point of the deen is to, for you to achieve saada, and that has a tie to worship of God, obviously obligations. But essentially, when we present Islam, we speak about Islam. Everything we're talking about, in some way, ties into this idea of facilitating felicity for the person that you're speaking to. That's myself, that's yourself. And everything has to be focused when you're looking at Islam in terms of that goal. And I think that's what people miss. It's about power, it's about authority, it's about practicing, doing things, finding things difficult, over stretching yourself physically, spiritually. No, it's about whatever is right for you at this moment in time, that balance, that, that tranquility, that ease, that facilitation. Imam Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziya says the Prophet came with two major 
tasks in his Sharia, one, was, one of which to, is to facilitate ease for people, and the other is to do things gradually, which is essentially the same thing. Everything's gradual, which means it's for, why do you make things gradual? It's not in God's benefit, it's in your benefit. It's to make things easy for you. I think there's this idea that we need to, and, and when I speak to young people now, they always ask me about hadith like, you know, the hadith of the strangers. Are we in the, at that time of we're the strangers, or are we at the time when, you know, holding on to the deen is like holding on to coal? I remember this was discussed like in the 90s, and people said we're at that moment. And now, yesterday we were at an event, and somebody was mentioning, are we at that time? And there's a sense that unless we're being really punished and tortured and being sidelined from society, we're not really Muslims. I think that's a, that's a, that's a misappropriation uh, of something that is in our faith, but it's not central to our faith. It will come as a byproduct of, of other things. But you can have like Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani, you know, a Jewish beggar who was watching him, you know, go past on his lovely horse in, you know, scholarly garb. And he, and he said, are you the person that says that, you know, your prophet says that, you know, this world is the, like the, the, the prison of a believer. And how can be the prison of a believer when you're in such luxury? But he said, look, this compared to, what, compared to what I'm going to get in the hereafter is abject poverty. <laughs> it's not about being, you know, humbled and, you know, being trampled upon. It's about having some honour and dignity in your life as well. Okay. So take us to your next gem, Sheikh. What's my next gem? Okay, so this this is interesting. This takes me all the way back to university. This is um, from Crime and punish, Punishment. And this is in, in the midst of, you know, talking about um, reading a lot. Raskalnikov is the main kind of, he's the hero of this, the, the plot of Crime and Punishment. And he's, he's famous for pontificating. And he's kind of a young man. He's kind of... Um, he feels that he's morally superior to everybody else. And, you know, when I was reading this, I was, you know, roughly, I would, can imagine I'm the same age of this, as this person. I'm putting myself in the, this person's boots. And you're trying to justify everything that you do. And this, this novel, Crime Punishment, is interesting because it has lots of axioms, lots of kind of um, things you can pull out, out of context and just make so much of them. And this is something that he says right at the beginning. He says that, you know, taking, making the right step and, and, and saying something that's new and, and innovative is something that everybody fears. Everybody fears um, thinking outside the box, doing something courageous, trying to make their own way. And he felt almost as if, he's saying as if he's like some above the law, he's above morality, he's above um, the rules of, of society. And at that point in my life, you know, I was reading like Bakunin, Marx, and there is this sense that people create laws which they say are moral, but they're not moral for anybody apart from themselves. They're above morality. And it was interesting for me because Islam says something different in one way, which is that the morality is well known. But this quote has a degree of um, truth within it, which is that he has this very in interesting insight into the human psyche, which is that People just like towing the line, just keeping to what is known, what our forefathers did, and that's exactly what you have to do at this moment in time. Whereas at that point in my life, you know, I remember I got into a very heated argument with an imam in, in Glasgow because I was seeing, like, there's no facilities for kids in the mosques, young people are not coming to the mosques, everything's in foreign languages, 
And and this resonated with me because it's, it's a thing that it's a thing that people fear. Something that's outside their comfort zone. Something that is um, not heard of. And just because it's not heard of, people fear it. But you know, I lost my temper. My father, you know, told me off for it. But essentially, I felt, look, why are people scared of new things? And and for me, that that means even my own life. I've always said whatever I think is correct, even if every single world we don't think that's the case. Like if everybody's on a topic is saying, um, or or the public general public opinion amongst amongst my peers or um, friends is something else, and I am convinced of the opposite. I'm not fearful of saying that. I, I rather, I'd rather say that and have it on 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 um, record than just capitulate to the ma the masses and just say, okay, this is what they want to hear. Okay, I'll say that. Um, and I, I think you are somebody who who likes to try different things and take a risk and take a chance. Um, and I wonder whether then coming on to that phase when you came back to the UK and you started Isolubus, mm. um, and <coughs> I think that's obviously taken a large part of your life over the last uh, decade. Over, over the last decade, mm. um, give us an insight in terms of what did it take to put that together. What were you thinking? Because mm. it's obviously uh, how would you describe it? I mean, on, you know, on the website, you you know, it's described as recalibrating Islamic education in the West, and you go through five different points in, in terms of making it relevant, the function, synthesis, language, and competency. Mm -hmm. But, you know, how would you describe, what were you trying to do with iSyllabus as, you know, you obviously co-founded with Sheikh Hamad Jamil, mm -hmm. um, but you developed a lot of the content. Mm -hmm. What were you thinking? Who was your target audience? Because I guess it was innovative in many ways, because the natural path you would have thought is, well, come back, to the UK become an imam or a hospital chaplain or a prison mm. chaplain. That was kind of the only jobs really for people that had studied abroad or maybe teach Arabic in the school or something. Mm. So take us through, you know, you come back and then where does Isilabus come from? What are you trying to do with it? And what is that kind of, how, how do you come to start a new project? How did you get people interested? Who were the early people that got involved? Yeah, so the Isola's project, I mean, it is a partnership and it's kind of, and it wouldn't exist if it wasn't a partnership. And the reason why it's a partnership is because I knew that Sheikh Amr Jamil was studying abroad, he was going to come back. Essentially, we would be doing similar things, we discussed it, and I felt it wasn't, I didn't really teach when I got back. Um, I kind of, um, you know, did small amounts of teaching, but I thought, if he's coming back, we'll speak and we'll we'll come to an agreement on working jointly on, on this project. Um, so it was very important to do that because I think it's important to have somebody that you can have that points out your blind spots and you can kind of throw ideas um, towards them and they can kind of filter them and, and it's a check and balance I think is really important. I was speaking to somebody recently and they were going to just start things up and I said well you need somebody with you at all times. and partner up with you and, and to do the work but in in that partnership I, I kind of did say that I wanted to take charge of the educational content so the development of it the idea behind it and I got into lots of arguments from people that had studied abroad and had come back and I and I said you can't just come back and teach what you studied abroad and you can't even teach the books you've studied abroad here to the majority of people 
and so I believe that you, this education had to be had to go mass market. I believed it had to be changed, and I I was a firm believer in the fact that there's certain things that you have to incorporate within that as well. So the language com component, English, um, looking at the end result, which is creating competency. In other words, it's useful knowledge, um, relevance, context, all these things. I think. When you're discussing what you're putting into the content, you have to look at all these aspects that I kind of, you know, um, you know, discussed a number of times, and, and, and it's on the website as well. Those were essential to creating the course. And alhamdulillah, like the people that I, you know, initially disagreed with, they've come round to the fact that, you know, this is the most successful way of teaching Islam. So a lot of people up and down the UK have kind of taken on that kind of modular teaching, um, and it's been alhamdulillah, it's been very, very successful in terms of the number of people that have gone through the courses and, and even the kind of the general kind of feedback we've had every year we have feedback forms we, we read them, go through them you know, amend content but Alhamdulillah it's been a course which has um, introduced people to their faith in a way that I think has changed their perspective you know, we meet people, families who have grown up in the shade of, of the course whose children are doing the, the youth programs and, and so on and so forth so you know, the syllabus has taken a lot, a lot of energy, it's taken a lot of time, but essentially it was, I was doing it while I was studying from the very start of my studies because it was, I was always processing what I was studying and thinking how relevant is it to people, you know, in their own, you know, sphere of influence, you know, a person who's, uh, you know, a housewife or a doctor or whatever. How does it fit into their life and how is it important to them? You know, the Islamic education we give has to be relevant to them as well. Can you give an example of how this is different than what else was being taught in the UK or how it would have been taught in another country? Like, what, In what way is it different when you talk about the context or talk about the audience? What was different about iSyllabus? Because it's different tiers, aren't there? There's, you know... And it's various iterations, but fundamentally, is an example or how you can say how you approached it that you thought is I'm going to you know want to teach this differently than. I mean, you could, you could say well, it's it's, it's it's the content that's important. It's the context within which you teach, like the auditoriums or whatever. That's not that's irrelevant. Like where you teach it is irrelevant. The content is really important. But it's also the impact, the competency that is created in the student that's important. So at the end of the process, you have to check whether a person who came in starting from zero has turned into hero, that you want to simplify it to base language. If they can do things that they couldn't do at the beginning, and that is the sign of success. And my issue was with studying the classical books as they are, there's so much to unpack within a classical work. And in fact, in this library I've taught like books on rhetoric and grammar, the, le the class is going for four or five hours without break. There, there's a it's, a, it's a long process to understand a classical text. Whereas we need we need information that is relevant to people and is deep as well. It's not just superficial, it's deep, contextual. And it gives things that we've in fact never studied ourselves in the Middle East. Like there's, you know, in, in the diploma courses content, uh, which is related to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi had, which we never really studied, the, the Prophet um, capacity of speaking, that's something that you would study in master's or PhD level in Islamic studies. There's lots of things that are in the basic course that are things that most scholars in their lifetime of study would never study. And so it wasn't just simplifying it, it was giving people depth, deep diving into things that they needed, 
they need for the West. And then, you know, simplifying things like, you know, give off the top of my head, you know, in, in the prayer, there are certain things that are makruh, like disapproved of in Hanafi school, you know, 70 or so list. I brought that down to two because it's two essential axioms that tell you all those. So you cull that and you're not just doing disservice to the science and the, and the, and the discipline. And then you add on content that's relevant about things that their kids or their work colleagues are asking. And then at the end of it, people go through and they know their fardain, they know how to pray, they know how to answer questions on the, all these things. But they have a depth when they're talking about the Prophet and turn on Muslim, for example. So that people say, oh, okay, that's why you're so enthralled by the, this person. Like they understand why people uh, who are Muslim are so attached to the Prophet So that's what's important at this point in time. And before the pandemic, I mean, you guys are traveling a lot, so I think would you take on four or five cities every year and mm. and, and rotate that? And mo a lot of the teaching yourself and Sheikh Ham were doing. Mm. And yeah, was, I mean, the, constantly traveling. The last years, yeah. I mean, I did my mileage for the last year was seventy thousand miles or something. And I didn't. I don't drive, so I didn't drive at the time because of my health. So, I mean, thinking back of having young kids dropping off at school before taking a train and then getting a train from one city to another city and then getting back in time to pick the, the, the you know my son or daughter up and then all that with my wife working as well it you know it seems to be undoable and insanity at the same time but you didn't think of it because there's people saying you need to teach in this city and that I think it was sometimes six cities on on the go with the different levels added onto that. So you'd have the intermediary and you had advanced classes. And so all of that meant that it was a very tight schedule in terms of timings from one city to another. Um, and it was disorientating as well. So I'd, I'd go into a lecture hall and think, okay, what year is this? Who are you? What are we studying? Like what page? And you just had to deliver right away and, and ended up having health consequences, you know, um, brain fog, they call it. I remember sitting sometimes in the midst of a sentence and and I just like look at somebody and then they're thinking, oh she somebody comes and whispers and says, Okay, continue. <laughs> so, so it was it was, it was physically yeah, exhausted. Physically exhausted. Yeah, it was exhausting. Yeah. But the thing was there was you know, you know, in Glasgow we had like two hundred and sixty, two hundred and seventy people in Tuesday classes. So that's the biggest class I think in Western Europe in Islamic studies for a for a year year long course. That was regular every week. And so when we did it, we never thought, look at the figures and look at the number of people doing it. But it was something that if people wanted to learn, we did feel that, you know, myself, Sheikh Amr, felt that we had a, a duty to do that, you know, as, as we could. And obviously since the pandemic, you've moved online and mm -hmm. I guess that gives you a global audience as well. Um, but let's go on to your next gem, Sheikh. Mm. My next gem is actually, because um, we obviously... The students, you take them on trips, and Umrah is one of the trips that we kind of take people on. And I remember, I, I don't remember, it was 2018, took my, I took a group, and my mother was in that group as well, so I took her. And I remember we were passing through Mina. This is like a tour of Mina and Arafat and things. And um, I was just like speaking to some students, and then she says, oh, look, that's, she's sitting next to me, she says, oh, that's the, that's the aqueduct that Zubaydah Hatun created. She was the, the wife of... Harun al-Rashid, very famous. And as soon as she said that, I, I, first thing I thought was, why didn't I tell, I'm, I should be telling people, because I'm a tour guide. So I remember I was telling people, this is that. And the, and it just, it just um, 
it just slipped my mind that it would still exist. I didn't know it. it still the remnants of it still existed. Cause she built um, water supplies and um, you know places of rest from from all the way from Baghdad all the way to the Hajj. And at one point, she, her 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 engineer said, "Look, this is too expensive." And I remember it was one of my history teachers in Damascus who, who said this to, to me, and he and he was like. He would stand up, and he would. It was almost as if he's taking on a on on a tour, like when he's talking about a great victor or a, a point in history. He was enacting the whole thing, and he said, "Idrib kana darbatin dinar." You know, you know, do it even if every strike of the of the hammer costs a gold 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 coin, and he said it, and then obviously he said, "Look, guys, you need to if whatever you need to do, it doesn't matter what you have to do. If you need to do it, do it. it doesn't matter how much it costs." So this is the thing about Damascus. One thing you know stayed with me from Damascus is the fact that once you've decided to do something, you don't look at what you need to input. You just get on with it. And for her time, you know, if she's thinking she's going to go bankrupt, for her it was not, wasn't important. Do I need to provide water for pilgrims? Yes, I do. Okay, how am I going to convince this person? I'm so serious that if it takes a, a gold coin for every strike of the hammer, that's what you have to do. And for me, a lot of times when I'm speaking to people and they think about projects, I think, oh, it's a bit too difficult, and it's too much. And I'm thinking, do you need to do it? Do we need to do this? Okay, it doesn't matter what we need to do. To get there, we have to do that. It's non-negotiable. And for me, in, in life, that's something that I've, I'm firmly um, entrenched within, that mindset, that if there's something that needs to be done, you decide whether it needs to be done. If we, are we agreed? Okay, what do we need to do? Okay, does it, does it sound difficult? Doesn't matter, we're going to do that. We'll find a way of doing that. And that's the difference between the Muslim mindset now and a lot of the mindsets that you have in, in society generally. They'll think, okay, we want to do this. They don't think that they need four billion pounds investment to do it. They decide they're going to do it and they pitch it. Mm. What Muslims do is they, just, they know they need to do this and think, Oh, but I'm going to have to have to ask such and such for a loan, and then I might need. I probably can't afford to do that, and then this go to sleep. It's interesting. A number of people have said to me, you know, they've come to you for advice, um, and you've said to them, you know, it's usually when they're a bit stuck in some sort of project. It's, it's you know, are you wanting to give up because it's hard? If so, that's not a good enough reason. <laughs> you know, you need to double down. Um, uh, you know, if it needs to be done, then you know, roll your sleeves up and keep going, or keep getting it done, rather than just you know, um, you know, just say it's, it's, it's too hard. You know, so um, and I guess thinking about that, so you know, you've you, you, with I syllabus, which took up a number of years, you know, um, I've seen you, you've also been passionate about a number of different areas. Um, to double down on, and I guess I've seen you in t particularly around areas of Islamic finance, mm -hmm. um, medical ethics. You know, you're doing courses on kind of gender and sexuality. Um, AI as well is something that's kind of interesting. You know, it's, I think you you're kind of um, talking about about as well. So, in terms of for you, what are the kind of areas that you are finding interesting or grappling with, or you're kind of taking up? your time now to say actually this is bits that I need to you know formulate some ideas or disseminate um, on so what are the kind of the issues as an Islamic scholar that 
trouble you, keep you awake at night, or feel this is areas that I want to focus on just now? I, I think, well, I think it's more, more personal interest and intrigue. Like, if there's discussions about gender, sexuality, and I don't know about the issue, I, just at a personal level, I, I need to know what's happening. I need to have a working knowledge of it, and to the point of being able to read specialist content on that, I want to get to that level. So the whole point of, you know, being literate and being able to read things is that you can, you can, there's this special thing that happens where specialists have the, have this, what they call the specialist blind spot, which is they're so enthralled within the topic and so close to the topic that they can't understand the topic in its breadth. And so their speciality is actually a hindrance to them. And I think in terms of Islamic scholarship, it's important for scholars to understand that even though they're not a specialist in medical ethics or in AI or in gender studies or in all these things I kind of, I like to kind of, you know, delve into, you, you, you should have a very good non-specialist working knowledge of these topics. What makes it more interesting is that they're important to you and then they actually have ramifications to the community generally. So gender studies is something that I've taught over um, a dec over a decade, I've taught like five courses on these and every time I've taught them they've been different because society moves. And because it moves it means that there's more issues coming up for the Muslim community that they're not cognizant of, which is really sad that the Muslim community knows nothing about topics that are impacting themselves and their future generations. And for that you need to have a working knowledge, which means you can discuss and you can provide options for those Identity is one of the biggest things I think Muslims are grappling with now, more than gender, more than um, atheism. Because I think people focusing on, on gender issues and athe even atheism, debating atheists, is irrelevant because at the core of our problems is a loss of identity as Muslims. If you fill that vacuum, the issues of gender and, and um, atheism are, are secondary. People, I personally, from my you know, speaking with people, the thing that precipitates people's loss of faith is not an argument against God. It's, it's the fact they've lost their identity. They've lost what it is that pulls them towards you know, the Shahada. And as Muslim scholars, that's what we need to connect with. That's the thing that we need to double down on. So identity, gender, um, AI, again, it's, it's like it's, it, we're at a crucial um, stage in its development and the utilization of that. And so we need to the parameters within which we can make use of it. Because I think personally, I don't think it's like Google. Google is individuals who are rogue, and if humans are rogue, giving opinions and you're taking that opinion. AI is essentially what you make it. Which means people saying, well, this is, you know, Google on steroids. It's not. It's something completely different. So the, the framing of it is completely different. And so that voice has to be there that you say, no, th you're making a false comparison here. This is not the same thing. And in gender discussions, a, a generalization, that's one generalization too far, I would say. Again, you need to have that voice that says, okay, you've got it wrong. Okay. So, Sheikh Shazwan, take us to your next gem. So, my next gem is, you know, I just preface this with the fact that um, there's so many gems that are prophetic and Quranic in nature that I decided not to have anything Quranic or um, prophetic within it. Um, because, you know, the thing about our faith is everything you read, every time you open the Qur'an or the Hadith Prophet, everything becomes a gen, even the most nondescript aspect of a construction of a sentence 
is a gem and you just need enough time to explain why it's a gem and so you know this is why I've only got one verse one section of the Quran in this and I've got you know which is and it's not a, a single prophet it's a description of the prophet which is intriguing because um, you know, my first gem, which was prophetic, is the hadith that you know the strong person is not the one that you know overcomes somebody in battle. That's his saying. But the reason I mention that is because it brings a memory back. The reason why I'm using this next one, which is the Prophet is described as being Daim al Bishri Mutawasil Ahzan He was always of good nature, but constantly in 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 kind of ref reflective flux. Mutawasil Ahzan is like. Mutawasal means to be to be habitually in a state of huzn. Huzn is like uh, melancholy in some way, and they seem to be complete opposites. Like constantly of good demeanor, and then to be in the state of um, deep melancholy. How can that be in the same person? And the Prophet was unique, and for me this is important because as Muslims we need to. I know you wouldn't agree with this, but. I don't know if you do agree with this. Like you have to, you have to be two-faced in some way, in terms of. I, I don't think you would agree with this. Actually, you would actually reprimand me for this, yeah. saying what I'm going to say, which is that there is a sense that you have to put on a face for the world, and then there's a face that you show to, you show to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, which is from the perspective of your deep connection with God. I think. You should be very wary of showing your connection to God to people. It's very important, I think, because that's the moment you do it. We know in our own tradition this idea of sincerity disappears, and the, the purpose of ikhlas, all that, just disappears. And the Prophet was multifaceted in the sense that he would he he was able to you know capture and carry different emotions at the same time, whereas this deep deep connection with God which which is his concern for people which goes into a state of melancholy and, and fearfulness and trepidation for people but then he didn't want people to feel that so he would be constantly in this state of happiness and smiling and and, and giving sense of security to people in difficulty so he had to play that part like almost like a parent who learns about the, the diagnosis of the child and the child says what's wrong with me and then the parent just starts to you know, be very happy and, you know, puts the child at ease. The Prophet was that. And so for me, the Prophet this statement of the Prophet, description of him, is in, indicative of the complexity of the Prophet And the reason why I think this is important to understand now is that Muslims want to create the Prophet as, as monodimensional, a representation of who they are. Like, their religiosity is what the Prophet is. And it was how I practice is the Prophet practicing whereas you are a small drop if uh, if that in the in the personage of the Prophet he is so complex so in, in, encompassing that if we were to meet him we would be uh, subhanallah you know to, if, we, if we were to meet him we would find ourselves out of depth do you understand that we would just not know what to do because we are saying we're following him but in in, in essence we're following our, our own understanding of what he was. And you cannot encapsulate the Prophet in one understanding of you have of him or one statement that he's made. Because 
his vision was multi-directional. It was towards the akhirah, it was towards the, the, the past, it was towards this point in time. Whereas as believers, we believe in looking at the moment, the, this moment you're in, you're doing an interview, I'm, I'm focusing on this. And I shouldn't be thinking about the past, even though you ask about questions about the past, the future. I should be here at the moment. Whereas the Prophet encapsulated past, present, future. Because he was given that view by God of the signs of the end of time, he was given the admonitions of previous generations and he was carrying that weight. And he was also concerned about people at the moment that he was speaking to them. You know, Harisun Alaikum, he is concerned about you. Bil Rahim, he is compassionate and merciful for the believers at the moment he was speaking to them. And so this gem is is is, is just a snapshot of who he was, Sallallahu And for me that is <coughs> the enduring legacy and proof of Islam. The Prophet is the proof of Islam from that perspective that he came and if you look at any aspect of his life you, you realize that we have amazing leaders in human history who have expertise in one aspect of life or notoriety in one aspect of life or fame in one aspect of life. The Prophet encapsulated in a real way, in a documented way, you know, perfection that we aspire to. And so Muslims should have the humility to understand that they don't understand the Prophet is a partial understanding. Um, and we pray to Allah that Allah gives us, you know, some insight into him, you know, in, in the hawd, you know, hawd al-kawthar, that we see some kind of amazing insight into such an amazing, you know, human being. Inshallah. Inshallah. One of the characteristics that I'm always interested in is obviously, um, even throughout the Prophet, peace be upon him's life, is about sacrifice, mm. you know, and is, is a lot of his his life has mm. involved sacrifice and I wonder for you in terms of, I, I think the more and more I look at and speak to people around that have achieved anything significant, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, it takes sacrifice, you know, even to master a language or, a, you know, a career or anything like that, it takes sacrifice. What would you say is the main sacrifices you've had to make on this journey of, of your own life so far? I don't think anything, to be honest. If anything, people have sacrificed. Like, well, I think my parents um, sacrificed. My my parents didn't know where I was when I was in Yemen. My father found out. He came and visited me in Sayoun. He came to Sayoun and he's got off the plane and said, and he'd been in Karachi. He's been in places that are very hot. And he's got off the plane and said, what on earth are you doing here? Like, in terms of the heat. I remember, you know, three of my grandparents passed away while I was in Damascus. And my family didn't tell me about them because, uh, you know, they knew I was studying. And so, you know, at that time I would contact my family probably every six months or something. You know, I wasn't the best of people, you know, as you know, in terms of communicating. And um, the, the express reason they didn't do that is because they thought it would make me lose focus. And so the sacrifice, I think, is from other people, like a bit of sleep here and there. Um, big deal, it's not. It's not sacrifices. It's other people like your your family, your wife, your children. Um, they miss something of you, my, my siblings, and so on and so forth. I think that's the the kind of things I kind of am aware of. In terms of sacrificing, I don't think I've enjoyed it. It's been enriching. It's been a good experience. I've not felt I've missed anything. You know, everything I've got 
in terms of memories, and I don't have any pictures of anything of anybody. It's memories, like all the shuk I've mentioned and, and I've studied with and visited in different countries. You know, all I have is sitting with them, you know, asking for their teachings, leaving them, you know, without having a picture. It wasn't about that. There's nothing, there's no sacrifices, all benefits, it's all blessings. Um, you know, a bit of hardship around, around, along the way just tells you that you're alive, at least you feel pain. I mean, but obviously it changes when you have a family, you know, any career, any mm -hmm. stage in your life, quite naturally and quite rightly, it mm -hmm. changes when you get married and then when you have children. Because um, there's another thing to contend with. I mean, how do you feel, you know, you've balanced that in terms of, um, you know, because usually there are people in the wings that hold things together, aren't they, and, mm -hmm. and allow you to do what you do or allow us to do what we do. I mean, how do you think you've balanced that? Or um, so that that requires the other other side to to come in and, and provide space in this podcast. <laughs> to answer that question. So um, I think, you know, my wife, she completed a PhD while we were married. Um, I think she's approaching senior lectureship now at the university. So, but, you know, people say that her work ethic is my work ethic. So I kind of, <laughs> she's learned some of my work ethic, but my work ethic, I don't think it's great anyway. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's obviously the family and your wife and your children are at the, are the forefront of that. And um, they'll be the best judges of the degree to which you've balanced, you know, rights, responsibilities. But I'm very, very conscious of the fact that you have to fulfil your responsibilities. Um, because if, if the people closest to you don't speak well of you and don't um, realise that you are being the best version of yourself, then there's no point, you know, going around the world or whatever, teaching or, you know, I, I don't lecture. So I just teach. I don't. I've made a conscious decision of not giving lectures when, when when I came back because I think that's it's easy to do. It's very easy to give a lecture. You can prepare and you can put a couple of jokes in, and and everyone goes away feeling really energetic. But the slog is the classes up and down the UK. Myself and Sheikh Amr, you know that he'll know as well. He'll probably tell you as well that 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 is difficult for the families. But you know, unless you test yourselves and test and, and recreate what's normal, you won't know what, what you're able of, capable of doing. Um, talking about families, I guess your father, may Allah have mercy on him and grant him a high status in Jannah. Um, you know, he was probably, f f probably stereotypical from our parents' generation of maybe from the South Asian subcontinent, came here as immigrants, worked hard and established a life, perhaps um, varying degrees of how emotionally connected they were with their children and stuff. Mm. Do, do you think he was proud of you? Did he ever say, mm. you know, you know, you, you know, clearly he was supporting you and, and as you said, you know, there's bits that they're trying to encourage you. Um, do you think he was pleased or proud of what you had achieved or when you'd come back and say actually mm. you know well I, I heard from other people that he's proud of me <laughs> so it's the usual way probably yeah so he never said it to me but um but he had to i mean at sacri i was talking about sacrifice one of my relatives well, somebody we knew we knew had said that Oradwan had actually just got married and just run away from the, the house and then the story cover story was that he's studying islam so they had to 
they had to contend with that. And so, you know, and I know the person who said that, and, and it was interesting that I went to a mosque in Glasgow when I came back, and the imam had, was travelling and said, can you do the khutbah for us? And I said, okay. I went in, and that person came into the, the, the khutbah, and I just remember looking at him, and I'm just giving the khutbah. In English, we talk in English, and I just see the blood drained from his, because I don't know if he thought that's what happened. So he might have thought, well, he's just, he's gone rogue. He's just like, found somebody who's got married and they're just making excuses. And I just remember, like, my father never pulled that person up. He didn't defend, defend myself. He didn't correct him. He just let, he said, well, if somebody's going to make that, then that's up to them. But I did hear that my father was um, happy. Because apparently read Ramadan when it was on, <coughs> it was on in the radio in, in our house and then he wouldn't let anybody like breathe while I was on radio. So I heard that from my wife because he would, he would like go around the house checking that everyone's listening to me. Yeah. So it puts me in a difficult situation <laughs> if I'm the reason why everyone can't, can't speak before iftar. And, and do you think, are you quite an emotional person? Um, no, not at all. No. I don't know. I'm, Depends what you mean by emotional. Showing emotions? No, I don't show emotions at all. No. Okay. And what's got you through the kind of the most difficult periods in your life? What's kind of kept you going? And it's funny. I, I, the more pain I, I mean, I remember to the sixteen, I was in excruciating. I mean, I was on. on I didn't. I realized afterwards I was on like a, a whole concoction of drugs. Apart, apparently, there's a. You know, who's that? Um, Frankie Boyle. Yeah. He's got a, a DVD which is called Tramadol Nights. Yeah. Right. I didn't realise that what I was on was so so vicious and so toxic that he actually made a DVD about it. So I was on these painkillers and I was in like excruciating pain. I was like crawling for about six months. I remember it was such a blessing. You know, I just remember that my family was worried. My father, I was, you know, he was still alive at that time. He was worried. Everyone was worried. And... I just remember it was so blissful, like just to be in need of having to call out to Allah to, to remedy your situation and just realize the, 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 the kind of the nature of the human being that they just go from being able to travel when they want and do what they want to being to be someone that's crawling. I couldn't even pick my son up, he was just born. And just to put him on my hip would create such pain that I couldn't do it. And so, you know, that was like, that was humiliating in some way, but it was also empowering that, that we as human beings, um, you know, we go through situations in our lives where we have to deal with certain things. And for me, it was, I would laugh. I would end up just laughing. This is such a, the, 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 the irony of it was so much that I would end up finding it funny. So as we come towards the end of the interview, um, I mean, how would you like to be remembered? What, what would you like your legacy to be? <laughs> legacy, okay. Well, I mean, I don't want to be remembered. I mean, I seriously do not want to be remembered. I, I couldn't give a toss, as they say in Scotland. It doesn't make any... I mean, see, to be honest, like, once you've done something, you just throw it behind your back and you just move on. Like, life's too short and there's too many things to look forward to in life to think of how people remember you. You do have this kind of emotional connection to what you would want people to think think of you as, but you want them to remember who you are. Like in reality, you want to you want them to know the facts. 
And because people can't know the facts, then there's not much problem. You would want them to think of yourself as, as a good person so that when your janaza is take, taking place that you speak well of you, that's good. Um, apart from that, you know, it's not... I, I don't fixate on... You know, I speak, say something, I don't, the last thing on my mind is what people will think about me. Do you have any major regrets? Major regrets? Life is full of regrets, isn't it? And missed opportunities, but those missed opportunities gave rise to opportunities. Okay. And if you were to meet a younger Sheikh Rizwan mm. in his teens, or maybe, you know, before mm. university, um, what would you say to him? Well, I meet lots of people that remind me of myself. So I, I meet lots of people that are uncut. You know, like in, in, like you talk about a diamond that's uncut. I'm not, I'm not saying my diamond, but I'm saying there's people that are unrefined. So I'm refined. The way I speak is not the way, you know, when I went to Turkey and I had to refine the way I spoke English because nobody understood Scot Scottish. <laughs> so there's lots of people I meet on a day-to-day -day basis where I, I think they just need a bit of a small, tiny piece of guidance, nothing big. Just somebody just, just having a, a, the common courtesy to just address them as a human being. Like that amount of focus on a person makes a world of difference for a person that's never had that. Uh, you know, you talk about, you know, people that are groomed, for example. A lot of the things that are related to that are people just showing interest in them. And then it leads to these tragic situations. Imagine somebody showing interest in somebody for, for a benefit for them, you know, a youth worker, a counsellor, a teacher, that just that interest clicks something in themselves that they can do something better. And that's the thing about, you know, public policies, politics, that I find really nauseating is that the things that make changes are small things. And so politicians always think about big policy changes when in fact what creates seismic changes in societies is small things and what I would say to a younger version of myself would be you know I would just push them a bit I wouldn't say anything of profound it would just be that thing that's targeted towards them that focuses them on a journey that they uh, fulfill their own potential in not molding themselves into myself but essentially, and this is why I think, people think, well, the goal is to be a scholar. No, the goal is to be whoever you are, um, regardless of what people think of what that is, and do it in the best way and have a connection to God, and that's it. And you pass away with that, you've, khalas, that's, you know, that's like, when your judgment comes, then nothing, no one's going to ask about your degree or your wealth, or they're going to ask, like, how well did you live? And, and that's the thing I think we miss. We don't allow enough complexity, enough kind of variation in our roles in society. We kind of try and put everybody into this kind of very fixed idea of what success is, which I think is a massive mistake. And how do you relax? I mean, I know you're quite a funny person. Uh, sometimes people don't get your humour initially, especially yeah. in classes. But I mean, how do you, you know, in your downtime, how do you relax? How, what makes you laugh? What kind of do you do because you can't always be on and study and academic and thinking all the time but yeah what, what I, I was speaking to my wife yesterday about this I said I'm gonna you know I've been busy busy so I said I'm gonna take a couple of days off and enjoy myself and she said how are you gonna do that and I, was, I thought I don't know <laughs> because if something intriguing then I want to know about it so it's like that's downtime 
alhamdulillah, I think everything I'm doing is downtime. I don't think there's a space which is not downtime, like spending time with my kids or just messing about. I do kind of building work and all this kind of stuff as well, like on the side, just to relax. Or just take my mind off things, I like going walking. But when I'm walking, I'm formatting ideas. So everything is, is it gives me pleasure to format an idea, format, format um, something that you know gives a new perspective on something that I've read. Like Islamic studies, I'm always rethinking what we had studied to see, okay, how does it make sense in this age? How can we reformulate it? Is there something that, that's a blind spot in previous scholarship? Or is there something that in previous scholarship I think is a blind spot, which is not, which I need to learn and re revisit? So all that is, is, is inquisitiveness, I think that's downtime, because that's what gives pleasure. Fantastic. And tell us about your last gem. Yeah, the last gem I had to go for a Quranic section. It was Wal Asr, because it's, it's one of these things. That, I mean, I do a kind of show in Ramadan in which I go through a chapter of the Quran and, and reflect upon it, and and it's unscripted and it's and, and and when I go through it, what what's interesting is that the most nondescript verse that nobody's focused on. Through a conversation, you find out it is just the most amazing gem that you've ever thought of. So, so much depth, so much nuance, and that's everywhere in the Quran. From the most nondescript um, version of a conversation between you know Fir'aun and the Prophet Musa wasam, to you know deep, deep verses that are about you know considered to be some of the most uh, uh, you know profound chapters of the Quran. Well, Asr is of that nature. Well, Asr. Um, is you know Imam Shafi'i said that if nothing about the, apart from the Quran had been revealed, this would have been enough. Well, Asr, by the passage of time, you know that human beings are in a state of loss, and I think that encapsulates a philosophy of how human beings should be. That the human being, as an ontological reality, is always in decrease biologically, socially, economically. They're always going into regression. And that can only be um, stopped by something which is a connection with God. And and that is, I think that's a, such a deep, deep thing to understand that everything is decreasing. And Imam Ar-Razi, he said something interesting about this when he was talking about it. He said, this is almost like the, the person who's selling um, ice in the marketplace, who's, you know, as the ice is, is melting, is saying, you know, come and, and, and buy this ware before it disappears and my livelihood disappears. It's like, he said he never understood the chapter until he heard that, that instance. Such an amazing thing. And that's the reality of what we are in. Unless we're moving forward, we're in, we're in decrease. And that covers you know, our own lives, family lives. Unless you're building, unless you're going forward, you're going into regression. So unless you're improving your relationship with your family or your wife or your community, you're, you're actually doing a disservice to them. And if, unless you're, as an ummah, increasing in, 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 with the, in terms of your vitality, you're going to go into regression. And if you take that to the geopolitical level, the ummah has essentially fallen into that. That the moment it stopped taking its own principles seriously and it took its eye off the ball, it started to go into regression. So the chapter is one, one example of many. Um, I thought it would be good just to have one example from the Qur'an text. And 
obviously we're going to send you off to this desert mm. island. Mm. How do you think you would cope with the solitude and with the survival side of things? It's difficult. I don't know how how, how would I survive the social aspect of life. It'd be very difficult. Um, you know. Anyway, no, that's a joke. Yeah. <coughs> Look, in summer, I, 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 you know, I have this time when I don't speak. So then, when when the teaching season comes up, the first week is is just so difficult to have to start speaking again. I remember when I was in Damascus. I I, I don't think it was like long periods of time I didn't speak to anybody. And I think when I while I was studying, I think I asked like three questions. So I'm generally not somebody that speaks, which is why you know people are surprised that. You know, I don't like speaking. I, I hate speaking. Is is so mundane, isn't it? Isn't it just such a mundane aspect of the human being? Unless there's a f function to it, and that's you know, I think Imam Hasabi is talking about you know people that we we aim to be like, who are criticised for being silent when it's the when it's the knowledge of God that makes them silent. And there's people that criticise for speaking too much when it's the knowledge of God that makes them speak. In other words, you do what you're, you do what you're asked to do, you know, by God. You're trying to not decide when you want to speak or not speak. If you need to speak, you need to speak. You can't just decide, turn it on and off. So I, I think I would survive okay because there's no need you to speak. Enjoy, enjoy the isolation. Um, and you can take a book apart from the Quran. With you to this desert island, what book would you take? So that that's something I've actually just practiced because I I moved to Istanbul, and obviously I had to take some books, and I only took two books. So I've almost like answered the question because I took two books. One was Jamal Jawami, which is on Usul um, al-Fiqh, juristic methodology by Imam Subki, and because it's just a compendium. It's one of the books I studied in Damascus. It's a compendium of hermeneutics. Of legal theory, but within it's got tasawwuf, spirituality, it's got everything, to the point that if I'm asked a question, it's somewhere in that book, some footnote, some because it's not one book, it's like it's, it's a gloss with a commentary and a super commentary. Within those kind of few words, there's something that points out a very deep, deep thing, and so I did that. I took that and I took you know Suyuti's Al Iqtirah, which is on the principles of grammar. Two books I took. There's only two books, Arabic books I took from Glasgow. And you can take a luxury item with you on the island. Yeah, the luxury item is um, Fortnum Mason's and Royal Blend Tea. Um, because it brings back memories. I, I was I'm, I love tea, and in fact, I've not tasted this for like almost about 28 years. I had a, a, a Sheikh, Sheikh Abdul Qadir, a Sufi. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a Scottish convert. Um, you know, very interesting. Like Grantham Jinnah, he passed away when I was in Bulgaria um, a couple of years ago. And um, he, I used to make tea for him, so I, I stayed with him for a period of, of, of time. And uh, he, 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 he used to drink this, and I, I got um, addicted to this as well. It was a very, very, very special taste. And so luxury, that would be luxury. I've not had it for yeah, as I said before, decades. And I think, apparently, I said to people that I'd love this tea, and they started talking about Fortnum Mason, and apparently something it's turned into some kind of eatery or something, and because, um, you know, it's kind of branched out into other things. But that time it was just for tea. It was just famous for making really good tea. So we'll get lots of people probably trying it out now, inshallah. So, mm. so Sheikh Rizwan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Mm. It's been 
real honour and pleasure. No, worth pleasure. worth the wait. Um, all I can say is, Mela Samantha, I look, mm. continue to give you the strength and mm. um, the fortitude to continue with the work that you do, and you know, continue to teach others in and obviously benefit the community and, and the Umwa as well. So, please keep us all in your duas, uh, and Mela protect you and your family in Shalla. Salam alaikum. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.